Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, February 27, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good I have morning. no sports report today. I mean, there's nothing really happening. Um, I mean, this weekend, the Gamecocks and Tigers play baseball. Um, at the end of the day, somebody will win that series, and then they'll go on to play an ACC and SEC schedule. It's not that big a deal, except winning the head-to-head matchup as always. I guess, important. Um, I, I do want to go down the road of dynamic pricing. I don't know how many of you seen this story or not, but my experience in dynamic pricing comes from a Springsteen concert in Madison Square Garden. Rev and I, let me back up. Rev helped me do everything required. We we registered with Ticketmaster. We had an account. We we got in the queue. We had, a, a I guess, an ID number of some sort. And we were, le- I mean, we were told, and no- nobody misled, that hey, this Springsteen concert at Madison Square Garden is going to be the first foray, or one of the first forays, that Ticketmaster uses dynamic pricing. And I began to read about dynamic pricing. What is exactly dynamic pricing? Well, I mean, it, there, there is no the the price of the ticket is fluid. Supply and demand dictates. There's these algorithms that say, okay, this many people are in a queue. This many tickets are available, um, and there's some metric used to say, okay, there's an overabundance of demand and an underabundance of supply. So Rev and I sat, uh, the queue opened at about 945. We got placed in the queue. We were assigned a number, and at 10 o'clock, the tickets went on sale. And Rev and I actually got into the queue. Right, Rev? We're waiting, yep. and then we got included in. I mean, it's, it's our chance to buy tickets. And by the time, and I'm talking about, I mean, the tickets went on sale at 10, and by 10 5, it was a sellout. And some of the tickets that I had my eyes on were two grand, three grand, $3,800. And Rev looks at me, and I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I like Springsteen, but I'm not paying $3,800 per ticket. But that was the, the art of dynamic pricing. That's not what we read about. Rev and I had an actual experience dealing with that true in the first person. And we just kind of looked at one another like, well, this is crazy. And the ticket prices would fluctuate. I mean, they would be high demand areas, low demand areas, and they would have different uh, shades of blue that said there, there's big demand for these particular sections. And by the way, you weren't looking at front row seats at that price. You were looking at they were up. On yeah. the side. I mean, decent seats. I mean, good yeah, seats. They were, what do you call yeah, good sure. seats? Yeah, they were good but, I mean, seats. But... No, I mean, I knew I wasn't paying six grand. <laughs> I mean, I knew I'm not paying six or seven grand for some of these crates. But anyway, the reason I'm talking about this, uh, we're talking about restaurants. And we're talking about pricing in restaurants. Uh, I don't want to call it a restaurant out by name. My wife is off on Mondays. So we normally meet somewhere and eat. And we're to the age we share an entree. That's how you know you're getting old. You share an entree. Uh and yesterday we met somewhere, and the waitress said, I mean, I think I got, I don't want to call it because it, it'll, it'll give it away, but she said, do you want uh, this with that? I mean, do you want broccoli on that pasta? Yeah, I'd like to have a little broccoli on the pasta. So I get the invoice, and it's a two ninety nine upcharge. I mean, they charge me for wow. a, I mean, I'm like, wow, okay. I mean, I get inflation. I understand the cost of food. I get, you know, the fact that a couple of these major food providers may be colluding to distort what the price really should be. But I mean, don't casually say, would you like a little broccoli on your pasta when you intend to charge me two ninety nine? So that restaurant, as far as I'm concerned, I'm done. I mean, I'd felt like that was misleading. 
the way they, I mean, and I, I understand the waitress is being coached, you know, how but to. But they upsold you and kind of. But they made with, it sound like it wasn't an upsell. Right. Right. I mean, do you, you know, do you want, what kind of dressing do you want with that? Okay, that'll be $100. You know, I mean, it, I just felt I'd been taken. And I don't like feeling that way. So let's give this next restaurant chain a little credit. They're saying it up front. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Wendy's, I mean, we can call it by name because it's not, uh, it's in the news. Wendy's announced yesterday that they're going to implement dynamic pricing in their restaurants by the summer. Hmm. They've got a, they, no, they, will, they will not be pricing. The pricing will be in real time. In other words, if you go get a, a Dave's classic, I think it's one of their burgers. Uh, that's the tribute to the, the founder, Dave Thomas. I mean, if you get a Dave's classic combo at four o'clock in the afternoon, it's one price. If you get it at 12.01 noon, it's another price. If you get it at 9.45 of the evening, it's one price. But if you get it at 5.45 on your drive home, it's another price. What do you think of that? I mean, at first glance, what do you think of that? I mean, I understand what their, their, their argument will be. Well, we got to have the kitchen more fully staffed in the middle of the day because we know the rush hour between 12 I mean, and ultimately, 1.30. That's pretty much free market demands, right? I mean, I mean supply and demand but, but, in, okay, I in, get in a minute-by-minute minute basis. But, but what, the Springsteen concert supply and demand? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel taken advantage it. of. Yeah. I mean, right. I, you know, I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, I chose to not participate in that uh, measure of free market or capitalism. What do you think of that? I don't like it. I mean, I'd like to know if I go to. But you to, like the free market. Right. I, and, and you just and, said it's reflective of the free market. And that's the conflict of the dilemma that I guess we're talking about. Because, yeah, I'd like to know that, and to use your example, Wendy's, if I'm going to go get, you know, a, a single or whatever it is, a combo, uh, that it's going to cost X amount of dollars. I mean, they all cost too much these days, right? We've talked about that a lot. But. Um, I'd like to know that I have enough with me to cover when I get into the line, right? But what would change about your habits if the Wendy's combo was X, let's say $12. Between 11 and 2, it's $12. After 2, it's nine fifty. dollars I'd go after 2. I mean, would you? I would. Well, when possible. Well, I mean, that's where I'm headed. <laughs> I mean, the majority of people have a lunch hour. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll say, well, I, you know, if I say, if I wait, 15 minutes, it'll be $2 less. I'd have to wait 15 minutes, I guess. So what the 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 art of dynamic pricing, you would agree, is capitalism on full display? I think so. I mean, it's supply and demand. Yep. I mean, when there's, a, when there's an abundance of, of supply for a double cheeseburger, 1130 to 2 in the afternoon, the lunch crowd, and then again at, what, 5 to 630, there's going to be, um, they're going to be a high demand for their products, but if you wait until two o'clock in the afternoon, you can save two, two and a half bucks because they're not as fully staffed. They probably sent some of their employees home. I would imagine, I mean, I don't run a fast food joint rib. I would imagine when you serve two meals a day, you got to make sure you're fully staffed during the lunch hour, fully staffed during the dinner hour. We call it supper the country, uh, but I want to be a bit highfalutin this morning. Um, what do you think, Josh? What do you think of that? I'm okay with that. Okay. You would adjust your spending habits. I mean, would or not t- spending habits. You would adjust your eating habits to work around some of the high demand pricing. Yes, I mean, it, I, I am. I'm I with am cheap, Rev. Though. I'm with Rev. I like to walk in the door and know what something's going to cost me. You know, this combo is this. That combo is that. But if the pricing is in real time and it's one price at eleven thirty, what if it's eleven thirty and raining outside? What is if it's 1130 and snowing outside? What if it's 1130 and the bridge is out? 
What, 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 you see where I'm headed? Mm. I mean, it's such a, I mean, they have the prerogative. I just think they're rolling the dice. So this is kind of meant to combat inflation. Well, I mean, I don't know what it's, I think it's meant for them to believe they run their business more efficiently. Um, let's get as many people in this kitchen as we can during the lunch hour, the yeah. lunch rush. Josh, don't be mistaken. I don't think it's about lowering the prices yeah. of anything. But they they have no interest in lowering their prices. Fair. I just think it's probably, I mean, they've done some math. I mean, you rest assured a company as big as Wendy's, I mean, they've done the math and they believe that, that if they can make more money when their kitchen is fully staffed and make less money when they don't have to fully staff their kitchen, I just think they're upsetting the habits of the consumer. I mean, the, the fast food consumer, to me, is not a connoisseur of fine foods. I mean, they're going there because they're fairly price conscious. Is that fair? I mean, if you weren't price conscious, you probably wouldn't go to many fast food joints. I mean, you go to fast food joints because you normally don't have a lot of time nor a lot of money. And if you got a lot of money, you don't like spending a lot of money on food in a bag. I mean, that's kind of the way. My wife will say, hey, do you want me to go to such and such and get this? I know you like it. And I'm like, I like it when it's not in a bag. I mean, I, I, don't, want a, I don't want a $20 entree in a bag. I don't mind a $3 hamburger, if there is such a thing anymore, <laughs> in a bag. You know what I mean? How, how, how much does a bag goof up a $3 hamburger? How much does a bag goof up a, a $30 hanger steak? You know what I mean? But if I'm going to buy a $30 hanger steak, I want to sit down and enjoy the ambiance of the restaurant and get its fresh taste. I don't want it in a bag and it's some little cardboard box inside the bag and I got to cut it. Wow. I mean, that's a $40, a $50 hanger steak in there and that, you know, muck of cardboard. I don't, I'm just thinking about, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I think I understand the intent of Wendy's. And that's to encourage you, I, I guess, to go during the off hours so they won't be overwhelmed. Maybe that's a way to address some of the labor issues. Is it a discouragement from you going during the lunch hour, if that's the case? What price savings would you kind of calculate in your head, Rev? I mean, if it's a, if it's a certain price from 1230 to 2, but it's only $0.30 cent cheaper after 2, I mean, I'll, I'll pay full freight. But if it's $2 cheaper... After two, right. I, I may wait until after two to save a couple you, of bucks. You have to, you have to consider it anyway, it, and it, you're probably it, going to be influenced. What, what, what is, what the reality of it is, and I was thinking about driving over this morning. The reality is, everybody's trying to figure out a way to combat inflation. I mean, everybody's trying to be creative and entrepreneurial and trying to, you know, work around the major ingredient of our economy today, which is inflation. I read yesterday, and this will be interesting. The average house payment, the the average house payment in America, the day we find out we got COVID, you know, the day that, I mean, somebody went back and looked and say, okay, this was the first American case of COVID-19. The average price of a home or the payment, I don't know about the price, the average payment was $1,406. The average payment today is $2,200. I mean, imagine that. I mean, I'm not talking about 20 years have passed. I'm talking about, what, three, three or four years? So in three or four years, the average house payment has gone from roughly $1,000 to roughly $2,300, and that's asset appreciation and the cost of borrowing money, which you and I would call the 30-year mortgage rate. Let's go to the phone. Bryce in Florence. Good morning, Bryce. Hey, um, yeah, I was going to offer a little different perspective, but then, Ken, you kind of touched on it. 
um, just the whole fact that time is money. Um, I heard something that when you're young, you've got plenty of time and very little money. And as you get older, you have more money and less time. Um, and I always think about those like long Starbucks lines at conventions or in airports where, um, I mean, it's wrapped around the block. And if you had like the $3 coffee line, the $10 coffee line, and the $50 coffee line, um, there'd probably be people that didn't want to wait in line would go straight to the $50 line and grab a cup. And where it could benefit people is if it lowered, now you can offer a $2 cup to everybody that's willing to wait in line. So it could be that, um, I mean, the way I think D.C. does traffic, um, where they spread out uh, the working hours so you're not, I mean, it's still a traffic jam up there. Or schools, I mean, you got some kids going to lunch at 10, 10 a.m., some going at like 1.30 p.m., so that you don't overwhelm the staff. So they, they kind of do that in other areas. And where it could benefit the public is if you can offer that lower price in kind of those mid-afternoon or mid-morning hours. And there might be people that are more price conscious that, that adjust their, their lunch times, maybe even with their coworkers and groups go at different times or college kids or high school kids or whatnot. So um, the beauty of it is it's, it's um, like – the, the free market and it's lots of different businesses and this is a business that gets to test it out and if there's something to it other businesses can follow if it's not they won't and that sort of relates to what i really wanted to call about today um was just this whole at&t outage and i don't know if you're aware there's this big it's called optum Healthcare, or something that does a lot of the electronic payments and all for insurance companies but they were under a cyber attack at&t was down the other day and just kind of the turmoil that that causes. And when you have millions of small businesses, those things don't affect you as much. But in this world of mergers and acquisitions and the Amazons and the Apples, like these big companies just kind of gobbling everything up, um, I also think it makes us a lot more vulnerable <laughs> to being attacked from the outside, whether it's like um, these cyber terrorists or other countries or whatnot. So um, I love seeing um, small businesses that are free to try new things and, and test test the market and see how it goes. But it also worries me when we have fewer and fewer companies um, and one one company being affected by something can, can disrupt all of our lives. So just a couple of thoughts. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm for or against dynamic pricing. As a Springsteen fan who wanted to see a concert in Madison Square Garden, I was adamantly opposed to dynamic pricing. <laughs> But that was very selfish. I mean, I think I understood as a, I mean, I don't want to say I'm a student of the free market, but I understand the free market. And there was an abundance of demand. There was a limited supply. And I was not willing to pay what it took to be in the lower bowl of Madison Square Garden. Um, I mean, that's capitalism. That's the market. That's that's kind of what we are all proud of, that, that America has distinguished itself from places around the world. I'm not saying I'm for or against dynamic pricing. Now, I will say this. If I were on the Wendy's board or I were someone internally helping make that decision, I'd be nervous. I mean, I'd be extremely nervous about consumer habits, the habits consumers have. There is a universe of people out there who are going to Wendy's at 1230 on Wednesday afternoon every week. I mean, they just are. There's another universe that are going to Wendy's at 5 o'clock every Thursday afternoon after whatever, Wednesday afternoon after church. I mean, we, we have these habits. Consumer habits are hard to break. 
And I think Wendy's has been profitable. It's the most expensive fast food restaurant in America. I mean, by most metrics. I mean, I've read that over the past two or three years. But they're trying something, I would argue, very unique and and very different. And I think when you when you try to make your living in a world where consumers have developed habits and consistencies, you, you better be real careful. I mean, you better be real, real careful. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, one of the other interesting points Bryce brought up, and we've talked a lot about this. I don't know if we've made a plan. I mean, we're not in a position to make a plan. But but I've argued, and I understand, I and mean, we're talking about capitalism, the free market, and, I mean, there, there's some things about it that are fair. There's there's some things about it that don't seem very fair. I mean, personally, it isn't fair to me that a Springsteen ticket at Madison Square Garden costs six grand. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. But it did to somebody. I mean, it did did to somebody. Somebody bought that ticket for six grand. Whether they've got a lot more money than I do or they wanted to go a lot worse than I do. For some reason, somebody was willing in the marketplace paying six grand for a Springsteen ticket in Madison Square Garden. In a perfect world, no, let me back up. In a world based on kind of a, a romantics world, it would have been the way Rev and I were talking about. You um, you camp out in line at the record bar, and you get a ticket that allows you to stand in another line to buy a ticket to see the Stones or one of these popular concerts or a ball game. I mean, there's stories about Coach K bringing pizza to the students at Cameron waiting to buy Duke, North Carolina basketball tickets. I mean, I've heard those stories forever. Coach K would buy 40, 50, 60 pizzas, and he would deliver the pizzas to the Duke students camping out, waiting on the opportunity to buy, you know, um, North Carolina Duke basketball tickets. That's the marketplace. But but I do believe that Bryce's latter point is is interesting, more interesting to me, because the marketplace, to me, a fair marketplace, allows multiple decisions to be made. And consolidation has negated that opportunity. It, when you really think about it, in, in the modern economy, we don't have many choices. I mean, we honestly don't. If you wanted to buy health insurance in South Carolina, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about indemnity plans. I'm not talking about some of the health sharing plans. I'm talking about just traditional conventional health insurance. I mean, I don't know but one company. I mean, is there another? I mean, I know there's Blue Cross Blue Shield, but is there another health insurance company that meets the criteria of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act is there, is there a competitor out there? So I believe that consolidation, and I think government's orchestrated much of this consolidation that has led to, Rev's heard me say, pull up the ladder. Uh, in other words, we've got our share of the marketplace. We'd like a larger share of the marketplace. We're not sure we can earn that share of the marketplace. So we either buy a competitor or we figure out a way to make them less competitive. That's kind of the way the modern economy works. I'm not saying that every front. But there's a lot of that that happens, and consolidation gives consumers fewer choices. Fewer choices normally give higher prices and, uh, you know, a less service. Uh, I'm trying to think of a lot. Well, I mean, airlines. I mean, that comes to mind. People complain about the quality of service at airlines. You know, they shove you with a chair. They kind of take a, a shoehorn, and they, you know, wedge you in one side of the seat into another. <laughs> your knees are under your chin, and you sit there, you know, for five hours or whatever. Sometimes 
You sit on the tarmac for an hour. Sometimes you don't even leave. I mean, it gets delayed. They, they've had a, you know, the, the planes weren't shuffled exactly right. Well, if there were 20 airlines at the Charlotte airport, guess what? You wouldn't tolerate much of that. But when you only have three or four choices, in other words, I want to fly from Florence to New York. Well, okay. I mean, here's your choice. What do you mean, my choice? I don't have choices? Not really. I mean, not really. And, and I just think these airlines are, are, are a good example of declining service, increasing price. What's it worth getting in a steel tube with 175 other Americans or people and, um, and flying 550 miles an hour to another city? I don't know. I don't have any idea what it's worth. But I know you're not going to get a good deal when there's only two or three companies doing it. You're going to get a better deal if 10 or 15 or 20 companies are doing it. And one of the genuine concerns is I don't have to fly. I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to visit certain places. The best way to get there is travel. Uh, the best way to get there is fly when I travel. But I don't have to do that. I've got to eat. I mean, I, you know, that, that's non-negotiable. I mean, I've got to eat. I can either raise my cattle, raise my pigs, you know, have my own chickens, which sounds a little more enticing now than it ever has. Or I can go, you know, eat at a restaurant or, or cook something, go to the grocery store, bring the food home. Look at how many food companies control such an enormous percentage of our food supply. So when Bryce says, you know, if you've got 100 different companies providing a service and some ha- something happens to the network, it doesn't shut down the entire sector of, of the economy. And, and when something happens in today's economy, I mean, it pretty much shuts it all, shuts it all down. But once again, food is my genuine concern. I'm afraid at how few companies own or control such a large percentage of our food. And what happens when only two companies, and two in particular, I mean, I think of, uh, they're good companies. They're very profitable companies. But is it good for us? Is it good for the consumer? When Rev goes to the grocery store and buys meat, I mean, the meat came from one or two companies. When I go to the grocery store and buy meat, what are, what are the odds of Rev getting a good deal on that meat? Who monitors? I mean, how, how vigilant are they in monitoring the price and quality of that of that meat? And that's just, um, I mean, once again, the free market allows that. It allows the big to gobble the little. But when you look at MAGA, when you look at Make America Great Again or America First, when I say policies that empower the American worker, the American family, the American way of life, I mean policies that break up monopolies. I mean, I, I you know, I know that sounds wow. I mean, that's not conservative. It's probably not. But I think the debate about big or small government is over. And I think J.D. Vance nailed it when he said, you know, the America First movement needs to understand that its priority can't be making government smaller. I mean, that's not going to happen. So why do we, how do we put the levers of government in certain places that empower not corporate America, not big business? You know, um, not, I don't want to pick on the wealthy here. Here's an interesting question. Does America first require a certain degree of class warfare? I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, I'm talking about hypothetically and philosophically. What, what does that look like? I don't know. I mean, that would the devil's in the details there. But does America first, in its purest sense, require some degree of class warfare? I I mean, I've convinced myself it does. I mean, it really and truly does. So who do we go after, Josh? Hold on to that. Because Josh, I mean, just voluntarily answered (laughs) yes. I want to hear what he has to say. Does America first, 
as a political ideology or movement. Movement would be a better word. Does America first, as a political movement, require of itself some degree of class warfare? Take a break. Back in a few. So we've come up with a question early this morning that would be interesting to hear from you, our listeners. If you are an, if you're an America firster and you're a conservative, you're going to find yourself in a lot of conflict because by nature, conservatives don't want government to do certain things. I mean, government needs to, to stop intervening, stop encroaching, stop intruding, stay there. We'll do our thing here. Stop spending money well, on I mean, things you probably shouldn't. I don't know the conservatives have said that lately. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I mean, the, the only reason, the only reason we don't as conservatives depend sad, on Medicare but, and social yeah, security, I mean, you know, I, I understand it's, it's the old saying, you know, stop spending money you don't have, but I don't see any conservative concerned about it. Rand Paul comes to mind. Mike Lee at times says things about spending money we don't have. Um, speaking of spending money we don't have, I'll throw another hypothetical out. We can kind of, um. I mean, the Michigan primaries today, and we'll get to that as the show progresses. But we just ask kind of a hypothetical. If you're an America firster, at some point in time, will you endorse policy that resembles class warfare? Josh says yes. Explain yourself, young whippersnapper. Well, I, uh, I'm i not exactly sure what you mean by that. But uh, what what I mean by that when I say yes is I do think there is – uh, some merit to elitism. I do believe that, you know, we're all equal in God's eyes uh, as human beings, but it, when it comes to running countries, when it comes to building rocket ships and, and being scientists or whatever, I can't do that. You know, like not everyone is created equal in that sense. So I do think that there are a certain type of people that should be running the government. And, and, and this whole like, well, anyone can do it if you're elected in, I don't believe in it. So that's kind of what I mean by class warfare. And I and I get that the warfare thing is a little different. Uh, like like I think th- this sort of society being broken up into classes is is the way things naturally are. Um and obviously the people on the bottom are going to resist that. Uh but the so so warfare is kind of baked into the cake. Does that make sense? Yeah, but but you share Tucker's opinion. Tucker's always said that he thinks people are hierarchical. I mean, human beings are like animals. I mean, they, there's a leader of the pack. There's a you right. know kind of an alpha male. There's a dominant woman. I mean, there there are certain personality traits that lead that, that that create easier opportunities. Some people just don't like leading, whether it's a lack of confidence or a lack of of interest, whatever. I mean, people are wired differently. You said some people are wired. I mean, when you say better or 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 strong, it's we're all different. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I don't know how to categorize you and me and Rev. I mean, I, there's certain skills I have that Rev doesn't have. Certain skills Rev has I don't have. Josh has certain skills that I mean, it, it's we're all different, and we're we're created very differently. Our our our. I mean, one of the great accomplishments in life is when a person finds their calling so to speak. I mean, they, they find a job that they believe suits the way they were wired, the way where they, they were created. I mean, I know people that have tried sales and, and I'm saying to myself, why are you doing that? I mean, you, you're not made. I know you, you're not made to be a natural salesperson. You would be really good at these things. I'll give you another example. In my truck body building days, I would hire someone that I knew had a good work ethic and they would struggle at something I put them in charge of. And I'd always 
Am I wrong? I mean, I thought that person was, I mean, they, they exhibited all the, the attributes I was looking for. I mean, they're here every day on time. They give it all they got. They're just not very good at this. So it was never my intent to get rid of that person. It was to find their spot in our organization. And I would move one person around. In other words, this guy's at the paint shop, and he sucks. He's never late. I mean, he's a hard worker, but he's, just, he's not real good at that. Hey, man, come over here and try this for a little while. And put him welding hoists together, and he was the best there's ever been. And I could have someone, you know, in the fab shop, and they just, they were there on time. They were hard working. I knew their family. They were honest and decent, wanted to make a life for themselves. They just weren't very good at that. And I'd kind of move them around a little bit, and all of a sudden, I'd find their spot. And they were just, I mean, okay, I'm good now. And, and they were quality and valuable employees in our, um, in our company, in our, in our organization. So I think we're all made different. Some people have a burning desire to lead. Some would rather you lead. Some have a burning desire to mix it up. Some would rather you mix it up. But I think we all have these characteristics and qualities that are valuable to humanity in general once we find our, kind of find our stride. Um, class warfare to me, from an America Firsters perspective, means to undo some of the things that were done to create disadvantages for certain sorts of people and advantages for other sorts of people. NAFTA. I mean, there's no way a fair-minded person could believe that NAFTA was good for the working class. I mean, there's just no way. I mean, you can't. I mean, I've read it. I've studied it. I've watched YouTube videos from, you know, economists and manufacturing experts. I mean, Ross Perot gave the best explanation of NAFTA ever. That sucking sound you'll hear be all the jobs leaving. I mean, everybody of average intellect and more knew that. I mean, there was no denying that. But the corporations wanted to make more profit. And to the corporation's credit, America had gotten real expensive to do business. I mean, they were dealing with all sorts of regulations. Uh, we litigate in a way that few other countries in the world litigate. I don't think we fully understand the cost of litigation. I mean, I, I just don't. As a business owner, I don't think, as a non-business owner, I don't think you understand the significance of potential litigation and what it costs to business. I mean, it's staggering. The, the percentage of our GDP that we litigate compared to every other nation in the developed world is mind-boggling. I mean, we are a, a trial-happy country by any stretch of the imagination, and it is what it is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not bothered. I got a lot of lawyer friends, and, and I'll tell them in a minute, we litigate too much. I mean, it's good for you. It's good for the profession. Uh, it's good for the court systems, I guess, in a weird way. But, but when you look at data, and I'm not talking about philosophy and ideology and opinions, when you look at hard, true data, our litigation rate is through the roof compared to developed and under uh, developed nations. But the point I'm trying to make, Josh, to me as an America firster who has to consider whether class warfare will be a part of this, undo NAFTA. I mean, if you, if you, if you go back, if you revert back to trade policies of old and you reward people for manufacturing in America, you make it more difficult to manufacture somewhere other than America. And I mean, once again, this is a complicated, sophisticated policy conversation uh, what do you mean undo NAFTA? You can't make me build trucks in Detroit. I mean, I can make them cheaper in Mexico. You can't make me build widgets in 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 you know in Florence. I can build them cheaper in in China. Now we we can strongly encourage. I mean, we can make it punitive 
if you decide to continue building widgets in China. We can make it punitive if you decide to continue building cars in, uh, in Mexico. And, and that's what we're going to have to consider. I mean, at some point in time, if America first is to reward its constituency, and that's how you build voter loyalty. I mean, why do unions vote by and large Democrat? Why do teachers vote by and large Democrat? I didn't say every union voter or every union member. I didn't say every teacher. But the overwhelming majority vote for Democrats because the Democrats have been kind to those varied interests. And if the America First movement is built on the backs of hardworking, you know, construction workers and factory workers, you got to figure out a way to convince them you are the path forward. You know, I, I, I voted for you twice, and the manufacturing base is still as small as it ever was. You know, I voted for you in four consecutive elections, and I don't see any more prosperity in some of these Rust Belt towns and cities than I did before. I mean, there's going to be some metric at some point in time that you've got to look these people to the eyes and say, okay, you voted for America first as a political movement because we said what we found wrong with the last 30 or 40 years of policy and business and, and commerce and industry, but you hadn't done anything about it. I mean, it's kind of the African-American. Remember when Trump said, you know, what do you have to lose? Well, I mean, the, the media lost its mind. How dare you insult African-Americans? The majority of African-Americans I know weren't insulted. I mean, they, they were a bit introspective at that time when Trump said, uh, you know, give us a try. What do you have to lose? I mean, once again, that, that's politically incorrect. And, and some of the well-to-dos, you know, that they, the tyrannical do-gooders, I mean, they lose their mind when they hear something as in politically incorrect as that. But I know a lot of African-Americans said, that's about as good as you could say it. Well, what if 20 years down the road, all the America firsters who invested, you know, you find them where they are and you tell them how wrongly they've been treated. And they know they've been treated wrongly. They just didn't know why. And you kind of explain NAFTA and GATT and TPP and the Afghan war and Ukraine and some of these others. And they're like, wow. And then 20 years down the road, nothing changes. And I don't think things can change unless we adopt policy to some degree involved in class warfare. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm not suggesting that you give someone a business card that says, I'm a member of the working class USA and I'm entitled to X, Y, or Z. The point I'm trying to make is the consumer, I mean, if you take the average American and their consumer buying power, whatever that is, I mean, you make X number of dollars, you got a percentage of buying power. You make a little more, you got more percentage of buying power. You're not getting as much bang for your buck because of the world we've created. See, I love this, this notion. And, you know, so, some of the globalists will argue, okay, let's say we don't make widgets in China. What, what are you willing to make for a, I mean, what are you willing to pay for a widget made in Peoria, Illinois? I think the great miscalculation is how much value that business adds to the tax base in that community. In other words, if there's a company in Beijing that makes a widget that Rev can buy $3 cheaper than he could if it were made in Peoria, Illinois, is the savings of $3 consequential enough to make up for the loss of 2,000 jobs at a widget factory in Peoria. Now, but that, that's the, that was the great unknown about some of the globalist trade deals and where we ended up. I think all of us want better quality at cheaper prices. I mean, that kind of Walmart's moniker, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think we all want as much quality for as little bit of money as we, as we possibly can. But I do believe that today in America, there seems to be a willingness to have a trade-off. 
Uh, Bryce is talking about small business. I mean, I think one of the fundamentals of America First has to be the empowerment of small business. Uh, I mean, this is not fair. You want to talk about something fundamentally unfair, and it's not conservative in nature. Um, but but I've said before that if I were, you know, king of America First USA, I would exempt the first $75,000 in income of a working man and a woman who have a kid or to whatever. When you have to come up with some number, you know, you got two dependents and you get this much. Three dependents, you get that much. You've been, if you're married, you get this much. But I think we've got to figure out a way to empower the wage earner. And I'm talking about I'm the, the, the person who works every day and only makes X, Y, or Z. They don't have a stock portfolio. I mean, it, it's not it's not conservatism. I mean, I'll accept that. It's not conservative in nature. I mean, it's not it's not adhering to my capitalist principles. But but I just think for the betterment of a nation, I mean, if we're going to consider making America a better place for the working class, we're going to have to do certain things. And I've, I've often wondered, how do you do the calculus on the widget made in Beijing is $3 cheaper? What if we pay $3 more and 2,000 more people were working in Peoria, Illinois? I mean, what is the, what, what is the economy? What, what is the economic impact? of that. And I, you know, I don't think we gave any time of day. It was cheaper prices made in China. You know, let's go, go, go. And here we are with a very disgruntled and displaced American working class. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, I uh, I think you're talking about something, Ken, that's uh, absolutely essential that very few people seem to want to talk about and that's the true cost of moving manufacturing six or nine thousand miles away and that the the loss of jobs the loss of income and recycling that money through the community you lose that when you move your manufacturing over and i i cannot see any good reason for doing a lot of this except that government wants to grow and corporate corporations want to control, or maybe, or both, and that, and it's just not, uh, it's not beneficial to the people out here that are using the resources. And I don't see how uh, you're going to change it real fast, but I think you can make some progress if you start calculating the true cost of moving manufacturing, to even even to Mexico, for example and shipping the engines back and forth across the border three or four times before they're ready to run. And uh, that that's pretty much all i got to say about that. But it's not fair, it's not right, and it's not efficient. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. So here's the question. It boils down to this. The government doesn't have a right to tell business where it can and cannot do its thing. Right, I mean, you you know, a, a government shouldn't be allowed. Somebody tell government that. Well, I mean, no, and you know, I mean, I'm talking about if if a, if a company's making a car, the government can't dictate or mandate of that company that you can only make that car here. Fair enough. I mean, I I, I can't yep. imagine anybody that fundamentally stands on the right side. I mean, I, I'm, I'm some socialists and and five star liberals. They're they're probably okay with government having that sort that sort of authority, but but. At some point in time, do conservatives have to consider in balance their political ideology with a common good? That's what America First kind of, to me, I mean, that's a reflection. It's it's not hyper-capitalism. Here, here's, a, here's another interesting question. 
Can you be an America firster and a hypercapitalist? I don't think you can now. I mean, I, I don't. I think there's got to be some consideration. Mike was talking about, you know, offshoring and, and moving businesses to, to China and other places around, around the world. Does the government have a job protecting American workers? I mean, it, we're, yeah, we're talking about both sides of a mouth. As America first? Okay, but, but what if protecting American workers require the business to be less profitable? I mean, does the government have the authority to make a business less profitable? Of course not. No, I mean, I think that's totally against everything I fundamentally believe in. But does the government have a job advocating for American workers? Therein lies the, the, the conundrum. I mean, there, there lies, okay, are those polar opposite of one another? Is, is policy that advocates on behalf of the American worker bad for corporate America? Well, if corporate America is okay doing business in a country that does not celebrate human rights, does not, you know, does not demand certain things of employees. I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, in, in all honesty, Reb, I know China's a communist nation, but it's hyper-capitalism. I mean, if a 12-year-old wants to work barefooted in a sweatshop for 60 hours a week for $3 a day, have at it. I mean, it's the, it, in the weirdest way imaginable, it is the truest example of hyper-capitalism. Now, it's run by communists. Therefore, they get the benefit of all that labor. Um, but, but can those be mutually, are those mutually exclusive? Is, is policy that puts the corporation's profit as a priority contrary to policy that empowers and advantages and advocates for the American worker? Is there a balance? I mean, is there some convergence point there that is good enough for the business, good enough for the worker, the business can live with, the worker can live with? My point is that globalism at the end of the day was bad for the American worker. I mean, it's hard to argue that. I mean, I understand that the philosophical nature of the debate, that companies have a right to go wherever they choose to go to make their widget as cheaply as they could, to be as profitable as they can be, and, and, and don't have any obligation to the American workforce. I get that. I mean, I think fundamentally I agree with that. But as an America firster, aren't we, when we advocate things that are good for the American worker, doesn't that mean by necessity more manufacturing jobs, you know, better paying jobs, more benefits, more, more, more PT? I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, I, I, and I think that for us to, we're, we're telling all these people and I'm talking about I'm talking about the deindustrialized Rust Belt. I mean, we're telling all that, and that's where Trump has done exceedingly. He's done better there than any Republican ever has. And I'll go on the record. What is today, October 26? Trump's going to win Michigan. I mean, I've seen enough data now. Trump's going to win Michigan. February 27th. What is February 27th? Trump's going to win Michigan. He's going to win Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan. Really? I, I'm not comfortable with Wisconsin. I, yeah, I mean, in the general. Yeah, I think Trump's going to win Michigan in the general because of exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Would you agree with me that Michigan is kind of the, um, I mean, it would be the epicenter of trade policy gone bad? Sure. I mean, Michigan was an economic powerhouse. Yep. Auto manufacturing. For, for the majority of mine in your lifetime. I mean, you grew up in the Midwest. You mm -hmm. know the stories oh, yeah. of all those factories and businesses and, and prosperity in Michigan. And it's not the case any longer. Michigan's GDP has seen significant decline over the years. Um, the percentage of people on government benefit in Michigan are off the charts. 
because the jobs left, the way of life left. So if Trump and America first sell these people the notion that, yeah, the world has passed you by, let me tell you why. Because trade deals in the name of globalism, in the name of free trade, those trade deals are the reason that you're not, your life is not as prosperous and promising as it was. But how long will those voters continue to vote for America firsters if nothing changes? I mean, in 10 years, they'll say, you lied. That's just like everybody else has. That there's going to have to be some action by America first that puts the American worker in places like Michigan in better standing and offers a brighter future. And that's going to be kind of anti-capitalist at times. Let's go mm-hmm. to the phone. Trouble making Tim in Florence. Good morning, Tim. You're on. Morning, guys. How are y'all? Hey, Tim. Hey, so I uh, I was just curious your guys' thoughts. I uh, listened to another show as well and uh, heard yesterday that uh, I guess uh, George Soros bought up an, a radio station. I guess 80% of the population still does listen to radio, so great news, Ken, Rev. But then I also hear that... Uh, uh, an investor out of Singapore uh, is buy, is potentially buying up Cumulus. So, you know, it's great. I love that Trump's going to win, but just curious, you know, for our country, at what point are we going to figure out that all of the news and radio and talk show and TV is all being bought up by left wing and people don't even realize what's going on. And I'll take it off the air, guys. Thank you, Tim. I mean, I read the articles and know some of the stories, and Musk says, Elon Musk says that George Soros is an arbitrage genius. I mean, the the investments he makes. I mean, Soros has decided that giving a presidential candidate $100 million isn't wise. I mean, that's not the best investing of his money if he wants to. And I think Soros' intent is to destroy America. I mean, I think he's an evil, wicked, anti-American force. I mean, I really believe that. But I don't think he's a dummy. And that's scary. I mean, if he were a maniacal dummy, so be it. If he were an anti-American dummy, so be it. He's very anti-American. He's very shrewd. He's very wealthy. And his organization are incredibly strategic at where they make their investments. He has invested heavily in some of these judiciary races that Trump finds himself in deep trouble with. In other words, making a contribution to a political action committee supporting uh, an AG candidate in New York is a lot more ah, game-changing than making one at a presidential campaign. And I do believe, it's kind of a compliment, Rev. I've not talked to you about this. I read You sent me an article. I sent you a couple of things I read. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a, it's a tribute and a concern. It's a tribute that some of these investors believe radio is still important in civil discourse and delivering and messaging and controlling the narrative. It's concerning and alarming that they don't think kindly on what you and I do. I mean, they don't. I mean, in all, I mean, the, the investment in radio is encouraging because it suggests that they believe radio is part of shaping the narrative. The concern is Will they continue to allow people like me to try and help shape the narrative? I've said it before. Yeah, what's their intention? I mean, you know what their intention right. is to promote left-wing policies. And, you know, what, what do we do if George Soros goes to our owners and makes uh, an offer twice book value? Can you do that? I mean, I don't think you can. Doesn't the, doesn't the judge get to decide what something's worth? I mean, can we make a business <laughs> transaction? 
in America today. Depending on who you are, I guess. Yeah, I thought about this. Yeah. Um, there's a piece of property in Pauly's that I like. Do I need to call a judge to find out what it's worth? <laughs> I mean, can I call the real estate agent, call my bank and make a deal? No. I've got to call some judge somewhere and make sure. But, no, but I mean, it, it's just kind of cutting both ways mm-hmm. on, on what Tim's talking about. And anytime Soros makes a move, it's normally a smart move. I mean, it really and truly is. And he is heavily investing in radio, um, the, the company out of Singapore that Tim's talking about that is buying um, some of the – they're not buying they're, – they're really buying debt right? is what they're buying. Some of these radio em, empires, I'm thinking about iHeart and Cubulus in particular, that own so many stations. And Odyssey is the company that uh, George Soros has, Correct. has purchased the debt. And that's a um, – and when you buy a radio a conglomerate today, you're buying debt. I mean, that that's really and truly what you're – I mean, you got towers and you got active coverage areas and markets and and whatnot. But I mean, all these companies tried to expand so quickly, took on a lot of debt, and um, and then the world blew up in two thousand eight. Hadn't really straightened itself out since then. That's kind of an interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know what Soros is up to, um, but but I do know that they're really good at making smart investments, and they believe that radio has helped. Once again, I'm not in the indoctrination business. I'm not going to convince you to believe exactly what I believe business that doesn't float in my boat. That doesn't, that doesn't give me any joy, but, but I am trying to help shape a narrative on some of the debatable issues that I think are facing the country. And if all of a sudden there are fewer of us, it's easier to shape the debate in something that you and I find a bit disagreeable. Let's go to the phone. Breeze. Good morning. You know this, but you have more power now than you've ever had in your life. And that's just because you sat down with a cup of coffee with Dave and decided to do this radio show. Now, you know, what's happened to me is I have become what a Democrat used to be and should be today. I think we, I've been thinking about it. I said, I've been played. I've been played and been played and been played. You know, I, you know, I'd always say, don't tax the wealthy because uh, it hurt, it'll hurt the poor. They'd always tell you, hey, man, you know, the reason they had to shut down that ball, that place in Pablico or Lake City, is because you can't play these daggone common folks that are beneath us X amount of dollars to daggone work making, uh, you know, stuff in the textile industry. You remember that? I mean, I've said that. I said, you know, these guys wouldn't be leaving if they didn't want, you know, all this, all this money. But at the same time, the elites have no problem taking all of the money. So you'd have some guy driving a Mercedes Benz telling all these other people that uh that they're bankrupting the company because they want to get paid X amount of dollars. And I would always back the guy in the Mercedes Benz, even if I wasn't driving a Mercedes Benz. And then I'd be sitting around and I'd hear these rich elitists tell me we needed to go to war. And I'd say, you better believe we need to go to war. Those daggone candy-ass Democrats don't want to go to war. Don't want to go to war. We need to go to war. Now these candy-ass Democrats are all talking about going to war. They ain't talking about them going to war. They're talking about the poor folks that they don't think's worth daggone off paying anything going to war. You know, so, I mean, right now, I, I don't think, I don't have anything in common, probably even with some of the Reagan daggle stuff now, or to George Bush or any of those guys, and I don't know what the hell you would call me, but I'm sick and tired of rich people asking me to cut them a deal, and none of those SOBs have ever cut me a deal. 
So you know, you know what I'm saying? So that, I think that just says it all right there. Yeah, you got so I get it all the time. Some guy living in a six billion dollar house on the Isle of Falls telling me that I'm too expensive. And I ask, what did you do for a living? Did you think you were too expensive? I mean, you know, I've had it. I've had it with these rich elites, and hell yeah, there's a class warfare. And I tell you another thing too. Every time we send a dollar over to China, we're sinking America even deeper. Because China is our enemy. They're a bigger enemy, a bigger threat than Russia ever dreamt to be. And they paid off everybody to where nobody will say that China is their enemy because they're afraid they'd be called racist. Hell, if I, and I, if I'm forgetting to think being called racist might be a daggone compliment. Because if you don't believe China is your enemy, you're a damn fool. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. we got to take a break, but I want to come back. There's a lot there, and that plays into the narrative. The difference in the majority of <sighs> political squabbles. Well, let, let, let's open that box on the other side. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Want to shift gears. We'll, we'll, we'll stay in this lane a bit. We're talking about America first. We're talking about where does the movement go, uh, whether Trump wins or loses. One of the things that happened in the last, what, 48 hours after President Trump won South Carolina Roughly 60-40, which is what? I mean, the majority, I don't know what the national media was saying. The majority of us who study South Carolina politics, we had it pegged at about 60-40. Nikki spent $16 million. Trump spent less than $2 million. Trump got about 75% of the Republican vote. About 23% of the vote was, to some degree, crossover. I don't want to say exactly 23% was crossover. There's an anti-Trump sentiment out there in the donor class that has kept Haley well-funded. One of the funders, the Coke back network, dropped its funding from the Haley campaign after the South Carolina um, Trump victory. Political analyst David Grasso is with us. David, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, South Carolina. <laughs> it, it was interesting to see, you know, how Nikki lost in her own state. It's difficult to see a path forward. And that's why, you know, the Americans for Prosperity is pulling out. Why do the donors have such disdain for Donald Trump? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the business agenda. If you think about the America First platform, the economics sometimes don't really gel well with a lot of the donor class. You know, to be completely frank, you know, myself included, I'm a free trader. So, you know, tariffs and whatnot are not something that many, you know, economic libertarians are something that they can sign off on. David, where do we go from here? I mean, I've been hesitant to say it's inevitable, but it does appear to be inevitable. Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, barring some crazy, you know, conviction of a crime in one of these lawsuits that is pending. Um, I mean, the Democrats, I think, are very concerned about Biden being their their nominee. Never before have we had two Americans running for the presidency at this age. But from an analyst perspective, where do you think we are relating to the general election? Come November, you know, I I was just saying in this this in my past interview. I think it's way too early. I think the two presumptive nominees are Biden and Trump. I agree with you. Their age is a massive concern for me, as are both of their negatives, and they're actually pretty similar. Um, I think that it's, there a lot can happen between now and the election. If we think back to twenty twenty, the world hadn't even closed because of COVID yet. Um, this date in twenty twenty. So a lot can happen. But in terms of, you know, as it pertains to the primary, Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. And the party is probably going to have to move past their feelings, as you're mentioning, the donor class. 
of, you know, pussyfooting around. Nikki Haley has no path to victory. Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. Of course, all of these, these, especially the criminal legal cases, could definitely affect the outcome of the election. But for now, it seems like we're moving full speed ahead as, you know, the same people that were on the ballot on 2020. Can Can you believe it? David, where does the establishment Republican go? I mean, I read Twitter, I read Facebook, I read article after article after article. They're not voting for Trump under any circumstance, under any condition. Is there a reconciliation possible? I mean, can the uh, the America Firsters, who I think make up at least two-thirds of the Republican base today, can they make a deal with the establishment? Can the establishment make a deal with America Firsters to give a better opportunity for a Republican, whomever they are, to win in elections coming or moving forward? And I mean, and you're hitting at the crux of the problem on the right. You know, politics 101 is that big tent parties win. So when you have these big wedge issues like you're having between the America first crowd and, the you know, classic, you know, back smoke filled room Republicans that have been in charge forever. It's a huge issue. I always think there is a way to bridge the gap in either party, but you have to get pragmatic about winning elections. And I think that Republicans might need a few more losses to bridge that gap, unfortunately, for the Republican Party. Well, I really don't think. Uh, well, you know, a lot of times when we think about the past, it's almost like the parties have reversed, right? Remember in 2004, 20 years ago, you know, really the Democratic Party had these big wedge issues between the progressives and the mainstream base. We're seeing that exact, you know, thing and problem playing out on the right. And I think a lot of times when you have, you know, people who are hardcore never Trumpers because of all the issues that we've been talking about for eight years at this point, there really is no way to bridge that gap. Specifically to answer your question, I think when eventually there is someone new on the ballot that is not Donald Trump, whether he wins or loses this time, it will be easier to bridge the gap between those crowds. David, it's easier to bridge the gap if the Trump voter comes back. See, my concern as a lifelong Republican, is the Trump voter is a Trump voter. And we're making a miscalculation in believing that they are Republican voters. They aren't. I think they can be made into Republican voters. But if you go to a Trump rally, I don't see a lot of um, Wall Street journals laying around. I don't see a lot of Weekly Standard <laughs> subscribers. I mean, I see a lot of people who believe, fairly or not fairly, that the world has passed them by. And the last 50 years of U.S. commerce has not been very kind to their plot, their walk in life, and, and they feel like their their opportunities have been less because government decided to make some deals not in their best interest. And I, and I just believe that a lot of political analysts and a lot of consultants and strategists are making the assumption that once Trump's leaves, the chaos leaves, that may be true. I'm afraid of a lot of the voters go back to the low propensity voters and non-participating voters. Does that concern you? Yeah, it does. And you make an excellent point. And that's why when you really look at Bidenomics, whatever that is right now, a lot of the policies are very similar to the Trump administration. You know, it's turning our back on free trade. It's embracing things like the Chip Act, Chips Act, 
you know, infrastructure subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. We do have to deal with these realities, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. Pretending that nothing has changed with the average American voter in recent decades is, you know, malarkey, as you know, the Biden administration would say. I think it is very, very important what you're saying. There is a huge schism between the Wall Street Journal reading crowd, a.k.a. me, and, you know, the average Trump voter, and really a lot of voters on the left, too. And I really think we need to think about them because ultimately they decide elections, not donors and people in think tanks in Washington, D.C. Well explained. Thank you, David. Appreciate your time. And and that goes to really the point. And I and, and I've tried on Twitter in the last two days. I mean, there are a couple of antagonists out there that give me a hard time. They bring up things that that I've done in the past. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I mean, I, I get it. You know, they they take that shot and that ding. But I've tried to be a part of some reconciliation. Is there a way for the Trump voter to reconcile with the? establishment conservative is there any interest from the establishment conservatives in, in, in reconciling with the uh, with the trump voter it really goes back to my initial comment this week i've never understood the burning desire to insult people that help you in elections i've just never understood that for the life of me uh, the the insults hurled toward uh the trump orbit i like breeze believed I mean, and I, and I guess, Rev, I believed it. I don't want to put words in Breeze's mouth, but he kind of admitted this. I mean, there were, there were larger-than-life figures in my world. And when they said those pansy-ass Democrats don't want to fight the Russians where they are or they don't want to confront the, the Chinese, I was like, yeah, that's who I want to be. That's what I believe. I believe it because he's a big deal in my world. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a strong man. He's a, uh, he's a smart man. He's a successful man. And they would say, you know, it's gotten so expensive to do anything in America. We should let the Chinese build everything for us. We should let the Taiwanese build everything for us. And I remember as a young person going like, yeah, but that's what I want to be. I want to be one that yells that from the, from the mountaintop. But there's this economic reality. There's this societal reality. There's this cultural reality. And I hear Paul Ryan, and I think Paul Ryan was, uh, you know, pr- probably an honorable man. I don't think he is now. I think he's a lobbyist and once you – decide to be a career lobbyist, I think it's hard to be honest and objective. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not offended by that. I mean, I accept that as part of the game. I know lobbyists. At a ball game, they're as good and decent as anybody, but they've got a job, and their job is to make sure government looks after their best interest. I mean, that's what they're paid to do. I'm not offended by that, but Main Street USA does not have lobbyists. All of these other industries and businesses and sectors of the economy, I mean, they, they have these lobbyists. So when David says... And I mean, I knew David was a Wall Street Journal reading Republican. Didn't me take me but a second to hear free trade and, you know, but, but they believe, and I've got no idea why they believe this because I know they're wrong. They believe that once Trump leaves, the chaos exits and the Trump voter stays and they do kind of what the Wall Street Journal reading crowd says do again. I mean, that's their hope. That's their anticipation. I mean, they don't tweet that. But that's what they're estimating. I mean, they're estimating that, yeah, Trump brought all these new people to the dance. I mean, he made them Republicans because he's a Republican. And once Trump leaves, that larger-than-life political figure leaves, and they don't have anybody to rally around, so they're right for the taking, and we can convince them that globalism is the way. You know, some of this interventionism is the way forward. And I just don't buy that. I mean, for the life of me, I think what we better do today is strategize on an agenda. Because if you really think about it, and I go back to the first hour, when Trump addressed African-Americans and said, 
Think about it. What do you have to lose? I mean, I, I think that resonated. I understand the media and the liberals lost their mind as how politically incorrect it is and how racially suggestive it is and all these other sorts of things. I'm not an African-American, but I got to believe a lot of African-Americans said, ah, he's right. I mean, he's right. What do we have to lose? I mean, you know, the Democrats have said, you know, they're going to address poverty and equality and, and equity in society. I mean, how many, but, you know, what have they really done to make our lives any better? And I think Trump resonates in that way. He speaks like someone they know, someone they meet in a gym, meet at a car lot, meet at a ball game. It's not some highfalutin academic exercise of, you know, what the poverty rate was in 1964 compared to what the poverty rate was today. How many elected officials are African-American in America compared to the percentage of African-Americans? I mean, I just don't think most Americans are that interested in some of those academic exercises. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning, Williams. Give me that gas price hey. update. Give me that fluctuating hey, gas it's price update. Fluctuating. <laughs> hey, um, you you put you um, look up that um, material I told you actually to look up. I got a note here. I didn't do it yesterday. I'm still celebrating that big Trump win in South Carolina. But I got a note, and I will do it today or tonight. Hey, uh, I think your coworkers need to get a cup. Are you pissing it? You got to be crazy. Donald Trump is the one who was sued for not written written partners to black people. Period. That was his so dad, was wasn't it, uh, Williams? That was his father, was wasn't it? it too. No, he was part of it too. Both of them got sued. We will not rent apartment to black people. We'll not rent apartment to black people. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. He's right. I mean, there's some legal challenges there in the past where Trump's father, and I would imagine Trump had a hand in this, but Trump's dad owned a lot of um, rental, residential rental property, and some lawsuit came along that said they were discriminating against African-American tenants, and they lost the suit. So legally, I mean, the family has been charged and convicted with uh, practicing discriminatory ways of renting an apartment to someone or not renting an apartment uh, to someone else. Williams is right there. Now, he didn't give me a gas price update, but he is, um, he's got a leg to stand on uh, making the accusation that Trump and his family have had some legal issues with discriminatory policies regarding some of their um, – some of their residential property in Queens. I don't think that followed him to Manhattan, but they had a lot of housing complexes, government-subsidized housing complexes. I'm not defending everything about Trump's business world. I mean, really and truly, name a business person that you could defend everything they've ever done in business as ethical. I mean, I don't know anybody. I mean, there's a lot of gray there. There's an interpretation of gray by Rev. There's an interpretation of gray by Josh. There's an interpretation of gray by me. I mean, you know, it, it, it was not, it was light gray. No, nah, I, mean, I was gray, man. I mean, you know, black and white. I, I found this about people who've never run a business. They don't understand the gray there. I mean, they really don't. They, they believe the decision you make is black and white. And I wish it were. And sometimes it is. And, and I'm candid. Sometimes you make the wrong decision. Sometimes you do it intentionally. 
Sometimes you intentionally do things in business that you know aren't right, period. But the majority of mistakes made in business are with a degree of ambiguity. I'm not sure if we can do it this way. I'm not sure we should, should do it that way. Let's do it the way we think is most advantageous. And if it is contrary to the, in, so some judge's interpretation of the law, we'll deal with that uh, when the time comes. But I'm not defending everything Trump's ever done in business. I'd be crazy to do that. Um, I'll, I'll go the record today. You ready? Uh, I've got the name here. I am 1,000% supportive of Michael Watley being the new chairman of the RNC. I am equally opposed to Laura Trump being the co-chair of the RNC. It's not a family business. And I think Trump has uh, the perception of doing favors for his family. That's fine in private enterprise. I mean, if he wants to decide which family member to give more significant share of the business because they've earned it or he trusts them more, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's family business 101. But I think the RNC is a national organization that belongs to we the people, we the Republican voters, and I think it's a bad sign when a family member is appointed to a high-ranking position and their father or father-in-law in this case is the presidential candidate. I just think it's a bad look. She may be the most competent person in the world, but I think it's a bad look. And I think you can find another female because there's something in the, I don't know if you saw this or not, of the RNC statute that says the co-chair and chair have to be opposite sexes. If the chair is a man, the co-chair must be a woman. If the chair is a woman, the co-chair must be a man. So if, um, if Michael Wadley, who is, I think, general counsel and GOP chair of North Carolina, has been very, Kahaley told me this yesterday, the guy's being a rock star when it comes to voting integrity. I mean, he really understands that world. Being a general counsel, he's a lawyer. That's what the RNC needs. Yeah, but, you know, and he had that legal mind about him. He understands North Carolina being a somewhat of a swing state, not as swingy as some of the others, but somewhat of a swing state. Um, and I think he'll take over the day after Super Tuesday. I think they'll have the election Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. One of these Republican hands could probably answer that better, but I think the election will be this Saturday or May. It's before March 8th, if I'm not mistaken. McDaniel has agreed to step down the day after Super Tuesday, and Michael Watley appears to be the leading candidate to, to, to replace her. And if you put her or him as the chair, you got to find a female as co-chair. No idea why that's the case, but it is. And Drew McKissick's not a female, so he can't be co-chair. I think Drew will be intimately involved. I think he'll remain in some high-ranking capacity Made, uh, director of fundraising. I don't have any idea. Director of whatever. I mean, they, they'll find him some job. From what I'm understanding, I mean, I don't know this. I'm not in the room. I don't talk to these people. But it looks to me like Michael Watley is going to be the new RNC chairman. I am 1,000% supportive of that. I am equally as non-supportive of Laura Trump getting the job as co-chair. That just sounds like I'm trying to find a family member something to do. Well, I mean, if you're trying to find a family member something to do, put them to work in Trump Enterprises. That's your baby. That's your business. That's your prerogative. You get to, you know, run the show as you see fit. I think the RNC has to be bigger than Donald Trump. And I think it's a bad sign or symbol or suggestion when Laura Trump, I mean, what is her, what is her experience? I mean, what does she know about that job? 
I mean, I don't doubt she's smart, and I don't doubt she won't work hard. But but or or is there not a more qualified person to be co-chair of the national party, one of the two parties that will choose the next president of the United States? That just looks too much like home cooking to me. I'm not opposed to home cooking, and I've told you before, as long as I'm in on the fix, I don't have a problem <laughs> with the fix. Take a break. Back in a few. There is a Michigan primary today. It looks to me, I mean, I checked some of the latest polling. It's a, it's a little bit, the Trump margin looks in Michigan to be a little more than in South Carolina. The RCP average is about 65, 35, somewhere um, thereabout. Nikki's still campaigning, still spending money. It's the craziest thing that I've ever seen, and I don't understand the logic behind it, but, you know, um, There's something other than logic. Well, I mean, people play, buy pet think? rocks. People buy pet <laughs> rocks. I mean, people do different things with their money. But I'm still struck by something you said in the first hour this morning as it relates to Michigan. I mean, you said that you believe Donald Trump will win Michigan in the general. Unless there's something that I can't account for, I think I think Trump will win Michigan, Arizona, Nevada. I mean, I, you know, maybe he wins Wisconsin, maybe Pennsylvania. I don't put a lot of faith in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. I just think they've done a better job than nearly anybody has, other than Georgia. Georgia probably did. I mean, you expect it in Pennsylvania. I mean, the precinct hustling, some of the unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, you, you, you expect shenanigans in Pennsylvania. Historically, it's kind of famous for that. But, but that puts him over the top for the general? If yeah, he doesn't I mean, win it, Pennsylvania well, I mean, 235, in Wisconsin? Georgia gets to 251. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but yeah, Nevada, Arizona, and Michigan. I would imagine Michigan and one of the other two get him over the necessary 270 uh, to clinch the nomination. Now, now, once again, it's February 27. Right. Uh, th- there are a lot of things that can happen between now and then, but at some point in time, and this is, I think, the most interesting part of the entire dynamic that very few people have any certainty at all about. When do they begin dumping Biden? Is there a strategy in action right now as we speak? I mean, I saw him yesterday with a cone of ice cream talking about Ukrainian funding with Seth Myers. Oh if I'm not gosh. mistaken. I mean, it's just weird. I mean, that's just weird. Everything he does. I saw that at the ice cream shop. Weird. Since he doesn't do press conferences, there were some reporters there were asking him about um, Gaza and Israel and Hamas. And he made the comment, and it's and it's so strange because he's standing there with his ice cream cone, he's licking it, and this is a serious life-and-death war or no war issue, right? And he's, uh, yeah, I think we'll probably have a, a ceasefire deal by Monday. And then he I mean, licks I mean, the a, ice cream. I mean, such just, a flippant, I mean. But, but is the reason they're allowing him to be exposed part of the plan to get rid of him? I wonder. I mean, that, that's kind of where... Um, I mean, I, I, I'm hearing more now that Michelle Obama has no interest, just doesn't have any interest at all. Um, I mean, that's always been the master plan. You know, they'll figure out a way to get rid of Biden at the convention. Uh, Kamala Harris will be the president until, you know, Hillary, uh, excuse me, until Michelle Obama wins the convention fight. Don't have any idea how that plays itself out, but it's getting time. I mean, it's not now, but it's got to begin. I mean, you got to begin seeing certain things that leads you to believe under, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little bit like, I go back to Roger's call last week or the week before. I can't imagine Joe Biden being the nominee. I mean, when you see the guy, I mean, it, it, it really and truly it is far-fetched. weekend at Bernie's. 
I mean, the weekend at Bernie's is a crazy movie, movie plot, but it's a movie, and that would never happen in the real world, but it's happening. I mean, you've got a, a, a man that is so diminished, so significantly in decline, and they're going to run him again. I mean, it's not that he's hanging on for another year and a half or another two years. What about two years? I mean, hey, man, there, there might be some way we can prop him up and, and cover for him and, and dope him up and, you know, and, and, and set his schedule to such that he can make it for another two years. You're asking this guy to be president for six more years. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't care how much you hate Trump. A vote for Biden, to me, is a dangerous, just kind of a, a dangerous experiment in American politics. Take a break. Back in a few. What was that's the longest intro of the history of mankind? <laughs> a lot of words there. I mean, good. Right. I mean, I'm ready to go, and it's like, okay, another sentence, and another sentence, and another sentence. So I just sit here. There's like, a lot of stuff to say. Josh kind of looks at me like it is long. He's right. It is. It is long. <laughs> so remember the uh, the scene in Fast Times at Richmond High, Josh Wooden. Bolt May, I know Rev will. <laughs> Which scene you're talking when about? When he says, when when um when someone <laughs> knocks on the door and Mr. Hand answers the door and someone's delivering pizza, pizza oh, yeah. Yeah. and We're he here. says, I got a pizza delivery Spicoli. here. And Mr. Hand says, who ordered this pizza? And Spicoli says, like right here, dude. And he brings the pizza and he says, Hand looks at him like, what are you doing? He said, eat some pizza, study a little history. And I'm thinking of Biden. <laughs> Eat some ice cream, talk a little foreign policy. I mean, I'm just thinking about Biden right. just Spicoli. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've I, not heard the audio from Biden eating some pizza. But, I mean, remember when Spicoli oh, yeah. just yeah. eat some pizza, yeah, dude, and talk I remember some that history. scene, too. Yeah, yeah talk some history. <laughs> and um, and Joe Biden may have been inspired by Fast Times at Richmond High. Because yeah. he would have only been 80 years old when Fast Times at Richmond High <laughs> came out. True. And um, I just can't for the life of me, Bolt. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, once again, put his reputation and career on, on the line when he uh, when he you know, joins us for this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. Uh, but but I, I can't imagine. I mean, let, let's be honest and sincere. So, so Trump is 77, 78, so. uh, yes, 77 yeah. or 78. I mean, he's, he's, he's older. There's no doubt about it, but, but it doesn't seem that he's in unable to, to, to carry out the task of being uh president. I've seen him on the fly. I've seen him read teleprompters. I've seen him with yeah. Brett Baer being interviewed. It's coherent. I mean, that, of course he misspeaks at times, but when you're politician you say a lot of words and and you misspeak but i can't it's hard for me to believe dr bolt that democrats believe they can squeeze six more years yeah. out of joe biden I'm, I'm sure that conversation has been held but i think this is the sometimes you got to play out a bad hand and there's really what are the options at this point so you think he's their guy yeah i don't see how they get out from under him i mean right there they are kind of they're they're, they're stuck with them this is the, with the old story right you, when you go to the prom you dance with the girl that you brought, or in some cases, the, the girl that brought you. But we we won't talk about that. Um, no, right. And the problem, the other problem is, you've got a vice president who's even more unpopular. So you can't sort of like rearrange the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, if you will. Harris isn't much of an option. Now there may be some shenanigans you can play at the convention when you get there, and here's where you kind of get into conspiracy theories in that you know in the the smoke filled rooms, if you want. 
But again, probably for there's nobody, there's no understudy. Who's really waiting in the wings? Who's the guy that you could say, oh yeah, this is the rising star. Uh, is that it, Gavin it, Newsom? Yeah, he's probably the only guy in California that you could probably say. But it's not a deep bench that the Democrats have right now. Again, this is the guy who at least is kind of kind of and Biden is kind of the perfect tonic. He cuts into a lot of that America first, a lot of those the working class vote that Trump has sort of stolen from the Democrats. Biden kind of offsets that a little bit. The working class guy from originally Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, you don't lose as much under Biden. Some of them still hold and stay with the Democrats. So again, at, at this point, stranger things have happened. Never say never. But I'm sure it looks like we're on a collision course, a repeat in 2024, Biden versus Trump. But should we be concerned? And I'm not trying to be a Republican hack here. I mean, I could be, yeah. but I'm not trying to be. I'm trying to be objective. Does it Should it concern fair-minded Americans that there's a chance the president of the United States doesn't have the cognitive capacity yeah, I think it's, to, to carry yeah. out the daily routine of making unbelievably consequential decisions. And there is sort of a, a way around this. You can't invoke the 25th Amendment. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. It's, it's, it's tough. If it got to that point, right, I would hope the, the vice president and the members of the cabinet would perhaps at least, at least consider it. But I, I, you do have to sort of give a tip of the cap. I think you have to. Uh, I think we sort of know that Biden is, is is well coached, and I think he's got some good advisors, good handlings, good handlers around. Him. It kind of pains me to say that, but I think they do do a good job of kind of managing his schedule, not exposing him maybe as often as they should. And so once you get on the campaign trail, right, some of these these flaws and warts might come out. Uh, heaven help him, right? If it's going to have to be a presidential debate, probably probably just one. But if you have a bad night on that, that could be that could be a game set and match. But anyway, I guess President Trump isn't is is no spring chicken either, and has been more to kind of make a few kind of like blunders as well. So right, both sides are going to be kind of holding their nose, saying or holding their breath, and let's just get across the finish line, uh, minimize the, the how many times we got to put them out before the people, uh, before they go to the polls. How many how many times has age made a difference in an American presidency? I mean, in other early American history. Um, I mean, walk me through some of the presidents yeah, in our, in our early well. <laughs> history that dealt with you know age as an issue. Yeah, again with President Trump, it's kind of like the first time that they were doing the Trump and Biden. This has really never been uh, an issue before. I mean, usually it's been you know even even Reagan was kind of an old guy, but there was never any now maybe only towards the end after he had been reelected in '84, where people kind of mumbling murmuring behind the scenes. That he was in decline. Well, in retrospect, he was experiencing Alzheimer's. So I think I mean, I, that, that would have is. been the beginning of his yeah. um, diagnosis right, of by Alzheimer's. Right, eighty-seven, eighty-eight. But but in but pre-Civil War, I mean, there, there was no president that the masses considered. Wow, man, this guy might be a little too old to do the job. There was there were some rumors on Andrew Jackson by the time he won. I knew uh, that. See, that's so. why I asked. That. I, I knew I had to pry it out of you too. <laughs> and, and, and Jackson, of course, Jackson's vice president was John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, and Jackson had these old dueling wounds. He'd be coughing up blood, and you know there were, there were times when Jackson'd be on the couch, and they would start the death watch, and you know like the the ministers are there, and like all the colors gone, and then they'd bring him a bill that Congress had passed that Jackson didn't like, and like the poor kid, the clerk would throw the bill on Jackson's lap and run out of the White House. Because he knew Jackson was going to get mad. And so Jackson looked up, and it's kind of like somebody in a horror movie. He's, like, resurrected. All of a sudden, he stands up. The color comes back to his face, and he's, he's, he's as good as normal. But Jackson even kind of wrote a political will 
in case he died. Explain that. <laughs> Jackson knew that there was possibility that he could he could pass away, and that John C. Calhoun, the vice president, was next in line. So Jackson wrote several letters to his his friends and advisors saying, "If something happens to me, uh, I really think Martin Van Buren." Oh, my secretary of state, he should be the guy who becomes president. You know, just kind of circumventing the Constitution, if you will. But that was Andrew Jackson for you. What was his problem with Calhoun? <laughs> okay. now, there, there, there were a lot of things uh, that Jackson disliked. Calhoun was sort of the architect behind nullification. A single state saying it can declare a federal law null uh, and void. And the other thing that Jackson didn't like about Calhoun uh, Jackson was a widower, and when Jackson became president, he brought one of his friends, uh, a guy by the name of uh, John H. Eaton, to be Secretary of War. And John Eaton married a sort of a, a loose woman, uh, Peggy Eaton. And, and Peggy Eaton was sort of like progressive, if you will, and would attend dances and that. And all the other cabinet secretaries didn't want to be associated, so they would have a party, and they wouldn't invite John and Peggy Eaton and so since Jackson was a widower, it fell to John C. Calhoun's wife to sort of rule over the social scene in Washington. Uh, and Jackson said to Calhoun, hey, get your wife to invite the Eatons. And Calhoun said, hey, I don't have a problem with them. But if I tell my wife what to do, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch. And so the fact that Calhoun wouldn't sort of resolve this sort of sex scandal in Jackson's administration, that was sort of the first breach, the first break uh, in them. And the two guys were just two, both Scots-Irish, uh, strong personalities, very temperamental. Uh, they were just on a collision course. And so, so. so, so, but, but why the, I mean, why was Calhoun? Because I'd read about this, um, this complicated relationship. That's putting it mildly. Yeah. But <laughs> so, why did, why did Jackson choose Calhoun to be his vice president? He didn't really choose him. He was sort of Calhoun. So, so was walk kind us of through that. Yeah, <laughs> because that's an interesting story. Jackson loses the presidency uh, in 1824 through bargain and corruption. John Quincy Adams becomes the president, but John C. Calhoun is the vice president. And so Calhoun quickly breaks with John Quincy Adams, throws his support into to the Andrew Jackson movement. And so when Jackson now, when you didn't have a party convention uh, in 1820, you had one in 1832, but in 1828, just a bunch of guys said, all right, Calhoun's one of us now. He's the current vice president. Let's keep him in that current position, in that current position, he's going to be Jackson's running mate. Jackson had no say in this. Uh, had he had any say, he probably would have said, "Give me anybody other than this guy." And again, when Jackson finally died, I've told you the story before. Uh, they ask him if he has any regrets, and he says, "I have but two: that I didn't shoot Henry Clay, and that I didn't hang John C. Calhoun." Who would who would have been <laughs> hmm. some of the more prominent vice presidents? In the early American history, I mean, what what vice presidents? I mean, obviously, the, the vice president eventually tries to become president. Yeah. But but are, are there are there more interesting vice presidents <laughs> than others? And most of these guys have been con consigned to the dustbin of history. They had no no role. They weren't invited to cabinet meetings. Their advice wasn't solicited. The president didn't ask them about uh, patronage appointments. You know, you have Aaron Burr, uh, vice president. You know. Kind of known as we know him just for some rather nefarious themes. Uh, you know, shoots Alexander Hamilton while he's the vice president of the United States. Then you, you, it's it's a black hole. Of course, you had a whole run of Virginia presidents, and so the other key state was New York. So Virginia always gave a New Yorker most of the time uh, the second spot. And that's why you got Aaron Burr, you get George Clinton, you get Daniel Tompkins. 
He's, nobody knew, knew about these guys even beforehand. They're simply placeholders. Uh, ironic enough, just a single heartbeat away from the presidency. And then once you get Calhoun, at least you've got somebody who's got a little bit of spunk. Uh, Martin Van Buren, who was Jackson's second vice president. Uh, Martin Van Buren, even though he's a good Yankee from New York, uh, Martin Van Buren presided over the Senate with a brace of pistols on him. So he had two cocked and loaded pistols while he was residing over the Senate. There were so many fears that somebody was going to make an attack on his life. Somebody was going to shoot the vice president on the floor of the Senate. So Van Buren came to the Senate chamber every day uh, armed and fully loaded. So nobody made an attempt on him. But, but it wouldn't have one heck of a story uh, if shots were fired on the floor uh, of the Senate. Uh, then you get, of course, uh, John Tyler, who becomes president when William Henry Harrison dies. Uh, he was known as his accidency. You get another guy by the name of George M. Dallas after that. And the only reason intriguing thing about Dallas is Dallas has to cast a tie-breaking vote on a tariff. And it was so unpopular in his home state of Pennsylvania, Dallas has to send marshals and troops to protect his family in Philadelphia from a lynch mob. So that's how passionate people were. Uh, they were really to make an end move on the vice president's family because of a tie-breaking vote the guy had to cast. But again, for the most part, then you get to eventually get Millard Fillmore from Buffalo, New York, uh, who comes in there. Uh, but again, these guys were placed on the ticket really just to uh, to balance it out. And then after Fillmore, you get a guy by the name of William R. King, who, interestingly enough, was inaugurated not on American soil. Uh, he was inaugurated in Cuba. Uh, the guy was a elected vice president, was dying of consumption. So they passed a special law saying that he could be inaugurated on Cuban soil, and the poor guy died uh, right after that. I'm going to we'll do this. Josh, take a break. <laughs> sure on the other side of the break, I'm going. we're going to play kind of name association. I'm going to throw a name at Dr. Bolt <laughs> and let him have at it. And and uh, I think this will be interesting. So, some, of the na- some of the vice president's names are not household names. Nope. Some of the other names are, but they never assumed the role of president or vice president. And I won't bold explain why. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we talk a lot about Jefferson and Adams, and there's a reason we talk about Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, presidents one, two, and three. We're talking about some of the unknown vice presidents. There are other people of that era and time that carry enormous political clout, and they're instrumental in America's past and I guess what led to its eventual future but they never were presidents. They never were vice presidents. Some of us aren't real sure what role they played in early American history. So I'm going to give both four names, and I want you to kind of um, give me a narrative about these four. First is Daniel Webster. He's a, he's a titan. He's considered to be a part of the, the great triumvirate of Webster, Clay, and Calhoun before the Civil War. Daniel Webster is one of those guys that if it was announced he was going to speak in the Senate, most of Washington would shut down. People would come. The galleries would be packed. Everybody wanted to see. They called him Godlike Daniel. Uh, Black Dan was another nickname that he had. He was an incredible trial attorney. One of those guys who always wanted to be president, was always kind of maneuvering behind the scenes. But again, politics, particularly presidential, it's a matter of timing, right? The stars just never aligned. Uh, two times they offered Webster the second spot on the ticket in 1840 and 1848, Webster declined both times, and one time he said, uh, I don't presume to be put into my coffin and buried until I'm dead. So Webster didn't think highly of it. Both times they offered Webster the second spot, uh, the president died. And so if Webster had sort of put his pride aside and accepted the offer, he'd have been president of the United States. 
Webster is most known for a debate in 1830 with South Carolina's Robert Hayne. And this is the famous Webster-Hain debate. And at the very, very end of the debate, Webster, his climax was, his ending was, uh, liberty and union now and forever one and inseparable. And so generations of Yankee school children had to memorize uh, Webster's second reply to Hain, and they only finally had to stop doing it once Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address came along. But again, no, a titan, one of those guys at the the, the almost rans, the never was, if you will. Guy always wanted to be president, just just never got lucky enough. What was he? Could you argue that he was one of the most influential American politicians and thought leaders to never be president yeah, or he, vice president? Again, a very very smart guy, uh, a guy who was uh, crooked and on the take. Uh, the New Englanders, uh, they bankrolled him. Uh, Webster oftentimes said, "I don't want to go to Washington. I just want to stay in and you know, practice law here in Boston." They said, "No, no, go to Washington. Here's a blank check. Write whatever number you feel comfortable." with. And so again, Webster was sort of in the, the back pocket of the mercantile, the business interests in New England, particularly Boston, Massachusetts. John Hancock. Ah, good. Going going way, way back, sort of a, a smuggler, privateer, bit of a scoundrel, a scalawag, uh, if you will. Again, he's most famous for one thing, right? Famously signing his name uh, on the Declaration of Independence. But again, prior to that, he had been kind of uh, in the vanguard, if you will, in the buildup to the revolution, one of the earliest founding fathers, uh, one of the earliest patriots in the in the buildup to the American Revolution, a guy who was really just known for one thing, but there's a lot more to him than that. Ben Franklin. Yeah, kind of the, the Renaissance man, uh, good statesman, good diplomat, inventor, guy who was always kind of kind of tinkering, a bit of a ladies' man as well. When he went to, to France, they said he was popular with the peasants, but particularly with the ladies. Uh, but again, a very, very skilled diplomat, and Franklin was the reason why he played his cards very, very carefully. Uh, and Franklin was able to bring France into the side of the United States during the Revolution. Without Franklin, without French intervention, uh, it's doubtful we would have won when we did. Uh, may have taken a little bit longer, but a very, very important, incredible act uh, by Franklin. Okay, let's go a step further with Franklin, because this will be interesting. I want to hear your take on this. The relationship Jefferson had with Franklin. Explain Explain, describe that relationship. Yeah, they served in the Continental Congress for a little while early on. Uh, Franklin was with part of the committee that Jefferson was on, which drafted the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson did did all of the legwork, most of the language, and it was his. And then Franklin, John, and some other guys kind of cut out some of the words. Uh, they cut and made the edits right in front of Jefferson. And Jefferson just kind of had to sit there and kind of grind his teeth as Franklin is eviscerating, cutting out certain sections, changing some of the words, kind of poking and prodding him. Well, actually, Tom, no, it's a it's a comma and not a semicolon right here. And Jefferson, of course, a very, very smart guy. Uh, but again, he knew Franklin carried incredible, incredible weight. And he didn't want to go to battle, didn't want to go to war with Benjamin Franklin at this time. Were they more friend or foe? No, I think I think they were mostly mostly friends for the most part. They had a they, at that time. It's in in the contents of Congress in seventeen seventies. They knew there was so much more that united uh, one another, uh, and they all had this common cause, this love of liberty, this desire to be free of the yoke of British tyranny. That whatever differences they might have had, for the most part, they're going to put them aside. The relationship that Franklin had with Adams, again, another guy too, very very, and John Adams was probably the most headstrong opinionated guy, the guy who walked into the room, and when he walked into the room, he wanted everybody to know he was the smartest guy in that room, uh, the guy who probably literally thought his, his you-know-what didn't stink. Uh, that's how much of a 
arrogant individual. John Adams probably probably was. And Adams thought the ideal form of conversation was an argument. Uh, that's how you get things done, right? You just you hash it out, you shout, you yell, and eventually somebody's going to concede. The, the, <laughs> the relationship that Franklin had with President Washington. And Franklin, by this time, he's, he's in his older years. Uh, he's not going to be hanging around. Was he a mentor more. to Jefferson Adams and, and Washington? <clears throat> I, I think that's the good way to kind of put it, right, that he was sort of this old sort of statesman guy who'd been around for a long time. And so, right, was kind of willing to just uh, help these guys kind of get things across uh, the finish line, if you will. The um, Okay, the last one that I want to ask you about, and, and the reason I want another degree on, on Franklin, we need some water. Do we have some water for um, both? I'm you good, good? man. Yeah. You good? Okay. I um, want to make sure you're okay. I heard you straining a little bit there. You've been there. It's been a good done, one. Yeah, been there, done that. So, um, Sam Adams, Nothing. consequential. Uh, I mean, we got a big beer named after yeah. him. That's how I know he's an important dude. That, that's so, probably, so, probably what most of us think about. So the legacy of Sam Adams is what? Uh, another one of those fiery, fierce patriots. Very, very important in sort of the buildup to the American Revolution. Uh, one of the early founding fathers, if you will, uh, the Sons of Liberty, was out there protesting, very, very vocal, vociferous, uh, calling for immediate action against uh, British tyranny. Uh, and again, all of the actions in Boston, Massachusetts, sort of the focal point, the center in the build-up to the revolution. You can look back, and Sam Adams has his fingerprints on it. What is the most prominent Southern politician outside of the state of Virginia? in early American history. I mean, I get Virginia. Virginia still has elected more presidents have come yeah. from Virginia than any other state in the, in the union, but outside of Virginia, who were the prominent Southern yeah. politicians? Yeah. Most of the guys were Virginia's, you know what, if you will, a guy by the name of Nathaniel Macon, uh, who served as speaker of the house under Jefferson. Uh, they called him the classic Republican. Uh, eventually he just, he said, it right. Uh, the Bible says it's 70 years old. You're supposed to retire. And so Macon, when he got to the seven years old, uh, retired, worked out in the fields with his slaves. So again, sort of the, the one guy who kind of practiced what he preached, uh, a guy who destroyed most of his papers at the end, so we don't have much of a, of a record about him. But at the time, uh, a guy who was highly respected, very, very well regarded. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, we're going to play a, a part here, getting to know your guests better. Are you ready? <laughs> Dr. Bold is in the hot seat. I don't know why he does this, but if he's crazy enough to come, I'm crazy enough uh, to keep asking questions. The, t the, the period of time that you've decided to dedicate a career to are really and truly defined by two wars. Yeah, yeah. The Revolutionary War, the Civil War. One is the beginning of American history, early American history. The other is probably, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, categorizes the end of right. early American history. Yeah, we're set us on a new, a new phase, a new what, era. What do you find <laughs> most fascinating about those two wars? And this is a weird question to ask. Which war do you like better as a historian? <laughs> What's your favorite war? Yeah, yeah, which one's your favorite <laughs> war, Dr. Bolt? They're, they're both fun to kind of study and analyze just the, the heroics uh, by the men involved in both of these conflicts. Uh, I was born in 1977, and so as a kid there were all sorts of relics and stuff from the the big centennial or the bicentennial celebration in 1776 so you'd always kind of see this stuff at grandma and grandpa's house uh eventually i've just always been more fascinated by the civil war uh i mean just just the actions you hundred thousand men involved in these battles lining up doing it again and if you think at, at gettysburg at pickett's charge 
you know, 15,000 men marching across a mile of open ground. And I like to, I like to think I'm a brave guy, but if the, the commanding general told me to do that, to march all that way and to take that position, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to do this, General. And, and if I did, I'd certainly be at the back. But on the flip side of the coin, if you're in the Union line and you see 15,000 men marching towards you, that's got to be a terrifying sight as well. But I think the Civil War, and there's, there was certainly so much on the table in the Revolution, uh, but there was certainly a lot on the table as well in the Civil War. It solved a whole bunch of problems. And, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, the Union victory in the Civil War certainly paved the way for the greatness of the United States in the 20th century. And so had we become two divided nations, uh, who knows what the world would look like. And so United United States of America was very, very important for the world. Who were the consequential political-slash-military leaders? I mean, I know Grant, Grant. Lee come to mind. I mean, we, oh, sure. we know that. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But we know George Washington. Yeah. A lot of people don't know how— much of a war hero Andrew Jackson was mm. Francis Marion. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, your, your namesake. Darn employed. right. I mean, but, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know that we understand. I mean, obviously Grant and Lee garner most of the attention and rightfully so, but who are some of the other political uh, war heroes of the civil war era? Oh, I mean, the, the, the list is almost, almost endless. There are just hundreds, thousands of, of officers, generals on both sides uh, who made their mark in, in politics later on. But all of your Gilded Age presidents uh, had served in the Union Army during the Civil War, and all of these guys, you had to be either from Ohio or Indiana. So you get Grant the first is the first one, then you get Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, who has a couple of great nicknames, his fraudulency or Rutherford uh, B. Hayes. <laughs> Why is that? After there. Well, there was a, a disputed, a contested election in 1876. And Hayes had a reputation as a squeaky clean, kind of an Eagle Scout type of guy. Uh, but there was some wheeling and dealings. Uh, there were 20 disputed electoral votes in the election of 1876. Uh, Hayes got them all. And so there was kind of some, some backroom shenanigans and dealings going on. And he needed all 20 of them. And that got him over the top, won the presidency by just one electoral vote. And he lost the popular vote. Uh, after that, you get James A. Garfield, another a uh, prominent general during the Civil War uh, in the North. Garfield serves just a few months in office uh, and then is killed. Uh, then, of course, 1884, you get one of the few guys who didn't serve, the Democrat Grover Cleveland uh, from Buffalo, New York, pains me to say. Cleveland had hired a substitute, uh, and so he he didn't serve. He didn't fight in the Civil War, paid a guy $500 to take his place. Uh, then after that, you get the human iceberg, as he was called, Benjamin Harrison in 1892, uh, he was so cold, nobody liked to be around the guy. Uh, Harrison is maybe best known uh, that when they installed electrical power in the White House, he was so afraid uh, he didn't turn on the light switch. He'd always have somebody else do it. Instead, he was afraid he was going to get zapped uh, or fried. And then in 1896, you get the last of them, William McKinley. Uh, but for an entire generation, at the end of the 19th century, service in the Civil War, that was a main part uh, of the Republican Party. And so the Republican, any candidate, they would wave the bloody shirt. And what they would do is a Republican would hold up a blue Union uniform Civil War with bullet holes and blood in it. And he'd wave it above his head and say, hey, it was the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, that preserved the Union and freed the slaves. And the other line that the Republicans would always make in an election, they would say, you know, uh, not every Democrat was a traitor, but every traitor was a Democrat. And so the Republican Party milked the service, uh, the Civil War. 
uh, really until you got to the start of the 20th century. Dr. Bolt, do, do historians play out hypotheticals? By that I mean, <laughs> do, do historians ever consider what the country and world would look like had the yeah, South is. prevailed? We're, we're not supposed to, but we do it, of course. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, what, so, what does it look like? I mean, what, I mean how much of that are you willing to share? No, no. And it, it, the argument is, I suppose the South had prevailed. If the South had won, would they have maintained, would they have remained an independent nation for how, or would they more than like, would they have perhaps come crawling back to the North at some point? It's a fun game. Perhaps they wouldn't. The South had a top 10 economy uh, at the start of the Civil War. The South did have an industrial beachhead in Virginia, Atlanta. Uh, there was manufacturing in the state of Tennessee as well. And so the idea that the southern economy was crumbling and withering away because of slavery is misguided. Uh, the South was still an economic powerhouse and perhaps was only a couple of battles away, a couple of desperate moves away from perhaps winning the Civil War against incredible odds that the North had. And I mean, 90% of the manufacturing in the country was located in the North, two-thirds of the railroads. Uh, the North had an incredible manpower advantage. And so this question is, why did it take the North so long to win? Or how was the South able to hang around uh, so long? Some some skilled generalship, uh, certainly with Robert E. Lee, on uh, some passionate fighting. You certainly have to tip your hat to them. Let's, okay, but if you play the hypothetical scenario of the South winning, you've got to address slavery. Yeah. I mean, you've got to wonder and question what the future of slavery would have looked how like. How long? Yeah, I mean, what are some yeah. of the hypotheses out there? Yeah. Hypothetically, the South wins. No. How long does slavery remain uh, accepted, no. and and what does the South do about it? Eric, right. you, you can't really have heavy industry alongside slave labor at the same time. And so if the South is going to industrialize, then at some point, right, slavery has to wither away. How long? Does it make it to the end of the, century, end of the 20th century? Maybe to the start of it. Does it linger along until you get to the New Deal uh, in the 1930s? I've heard people suggest that that might have been the final, the death knell. For slave. There's no right or wrong, and unfortunately for, for history, uh, we can't sort of like go back into a lab and sort of reconcoct this and kind of see how things might have turned out if, if X had happened differently than Y. But again, it's a fun little game, and if it's a way you really want to get some historians uh, really, really passionate, uh, get them together, uh, get a little bit of alcohol, and watch the fireworks. Now that, that would be a lot of fun <laughs> to play out hypothetically, the, the South went into the Civil War, and what, I mean, obviously you can't discuss I mean, the, the economy and the agrarian nature of the economy, manufacturing, Atlanta, Virginia, yeah, yeah. you've done a great job of addressing that. But the elephant in the room is slavery sure, and what happens to slavery yeah. if the South wins. Um, you're from Buffalo. Yeah. You've expressed to us that there is uh, a similarity to Buffalo and Michigan. I mean, I know I think, they're yeah. in different states, but that's kind of the Rust Belt <laughs> yep. beginning and middle of the Rust Belt. The Michigan primary is today. Yeah. Trump seems to be a political darling yeah. of the American middle class, the American working class. Yeah, I would say your your old factory workers, right? You know, the, the the guys who've been just pulling a lever, punching a time clock for many many years, whose wages have been stagnant, but their other expenses have gone up. And so, what, what works in Michigan could possibly work in Western New York as well. And Trump has done very very well uh, in Erie County, uh, the city of or where Buffalo is located. So, what do you think happens today in the Michigan Republican primary? It looks like it's going to be a, a runaway. It looks like he's going to win big again. It, it is just, it looks, this is inevitable and unstoppable force uh, at this point. And the only thing that can probably derail it is going to be John Roberts or maybe some very, very aggressive prosecutor and 12 fools on a jury. 
You know, the, the interesting part of this, Bolt, we got a couple of minutes here. Dr. Will sure. Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University. You're not a lawyer. I'm not a <laughs> lawyer. But it looks to me that the, uh, the, the over-aggressive nature of judiciary in trying to make an example of Donald Trump is beginning to fall apart and unravel. It looks to me like Fonnie Willis may have more trouble yeah. in, in Georgia than, uh, than Donald Trump has. You care to comment on that? I would. It's kind of surprising. You would think if you're going after the president, former president of the United States, you're going to have all your ducks in a row. You're going to make sure there's no skeletons. This seems like lawyering 101. I mean, I don't know anything about it, but if, you, if you're going after this guy, you got to be holier than thou. I mean, you can't have something like this that's going to cause people to question your motives. So just a terrible, terrible blunder, I think, on, on their part. So who knows how it's all going to shake out, but very, very surprised when I kind of heard what was going on. You know, the Revolutionary War, I go back to that. If you're going to swing at the king, you're, you can't miss. You better not miss, <laughs> and I'm afraid that they may have right, missed in, uh, right. in Georgia. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Hey, good stuff. Have a good week, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone texted me a second ago and said, I was not aware that the co-chair and chair of the RNC had to be opposite sexes. I was not either until Saturday afternoon texting with a good friend of mine who's very influential or involved in the internals of the, the RNC. And they said, yeah. And it looks to me like um, Michael Watley is going to be the choice of uh, really and truly the Trump crowd. And if he's the choice of the Trump crowd, he wins the RNC chairmanship. I just, uh, Josh, I want to get your take and I want to get Rev's take on this. Um, I mean, to some degree, to varying degrees, we're all Trump loyalists. I mean, we, we all voted for Trump in 2024 20, and again in, in 28, want him to be back in the White House, want to see an America First agenda implemented. But I don't like the idea of Laura Trump being co-chair of the RNC. What say you, Josh? Truth be told, I don't know enough about Laura specifically. You know, to he, have... you know she's his daughter-in-law. Yeah. Her last name is Trump. Of course. But on principle, I'm not completely against that uh, because... I think, like I've said before, I think Trump is what we need in America right now. I think he is against the establishment. The establishment is bad. And maybe having some kind of residual effect after his next four years, if he's sworn in as president, may be a good thing. But on her specifically, I don't know what her politics are. I don't know how well, I don't know if she'll be good for that. But on principle alone, I'm not opposed to it. So... I'm not here to say that she isn't qualified. I don't want to disqualify her just because she's related to Donald Trump. And she certainly knows, you know, she's seen some of the the inside of the dirty politics, but, right? But, but surely we can't be as cynical as we are and not be cynical about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. It does. I mean, it, it'd let, be better. Let's get rid of Rona. Let's put Michael Watley in as chairman and let's give my daughter-in-law something to do but that sounds like i mean that that smells like that to me let's get rid of rona everybody wants to we think she's bad at the job i think she's bad at the job so i'm all for michael watley but but i think the other makes it even more complicated to merge america first and some of the never trump crowd so if we believe there aren't enough of us nor them i mean it makes the election too close for comfort right i mean if we could coalesce if we could find some reasonable place to meet in the middle. I'm not talking about meeting in the middle between transgenderism and gender mutilation. I'm talking about conservatives. You know, the, the America firsters, 
this pro-worker agenda and the establishment Republican. I mean, there, there's got to be some common ground here. There's not enough of them. There's certainly, uh, well, I mean, there's certainly not enough of them. We don't think there's enough of us. The big tent party, the welcoming, inviting, you know, ever-growing Republican party that we all kind of romance about and believe is essential in winning some of these some of these swing states. Uh, I don't think anybody can deny that if the number of establishment Republicans staying home exceeds fifteen percent, it makes it a lot harder to win. I mean, I don't. You can't escape that reality. I mean, that that's a mathematical fact. That if the establishment Republican doesn't vote for Trump because they find him unacceptable, and that number exceeds fifteen percent. He's going to have a lot of trouble winning some of these swing states. You need about all the Republicans voting. You need some of the independents voting. Um, and I just think it makes it more complicated with her and his last name being on a desk or a, or a door at RNC headquarters. I, I just there, There's got to be somebody as good as she is that doesn't have her last name that makes it more likely coalescing is possible. Because they're, they're, we talked about black and white and gray. It's not black over here, establishment Republican, white over here, you know, America first. There, there's a merging there. That's kind of an interesting uh, debate we may have in the next hour. Back in a few. We're discussing a second ago the RNC chairmanship role, responsibility, who did a great job, who's not doing such a swell job. My concern is that the RNC has not made the investment necessary to match the infrastructure the Democrats have built, like it or not, an unsupervised mail-in ballot. Michael Watley is a name that I keep hearing. He's the GOP chair of North Carolina. I think he's a lawyer uh, by education. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, we know now that Chairman McDaniel is going to step down. Do we know anything about who may be the replacement? Well, I think we got somebody from South Carolina who could be on the uh, the docket for this. That's one of the names I hear floated around. I'm sure you know more about him than we do. But, yes, Michael Watley is certainly probably one of the front runners right now just because you have the endorsement of former President Trump, which does carry a lot of weight as of right now. But that doesn't always mean that it's a shoe in And one of the concerns that I'm hearing could be a problem for, for Trump's handpicked candidates for RNC chair is that there is a a feeling that the RNC is supposed to remain neutral, whether it's a presidential election or a primary election in a a previous different state. Think that those factors uh, couple with the fact that you would be putting a member of Trump's family in this little ring of this trio of candidates that he wants to run for different leadership positions. I think that would be a concern for some people. Ryan, do people inside the Beltway really care who runs the RNC? Or is this more about, I don't know, just... uh... Uh, the political energy, political theater, political nuance. Do people genuinely care who's in charge of the RNC and DNC? Well, yes, they do, because uh, if, if, a, if a party keeps losing, they're certainly going to want to see changes at the top of leadership. And certainly a lot of the blame from the last election cycle fell on Ronna McDaniel. And, you know, when you call upon the fact that 2020 Republicans lose the White House and Congress, 2022, they fail to take back the Senate. They barely are able to take back the House. 
usually RNC leadership is where a lot of that blame comes from because they're responsible for a lot of fundraising. And I mean, their main goal is to win elections in general. So yes, the RNC chair position is a very important one, especially when it comes to the idea of, of, of this being a vital election cycle where Republicans want to control Congress and they want to control the White House. Well explained. Ron, thanks for your time, my man. Have a good day. You too. Have a good one. Thank you. And and I want to walk through the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip scenario. This is why I'm concerned about Laura Trump being co-chair of the National Party. So let's let's say that I'm right. Let's say some of the estimations that I've given are are somewhat accurate. That about 70% of Republican primary voters today identify to some degree as America Firsters. I mean, within that movement, you've got kind of an extreme America Firster. You've got a little bit softer America Firster. But they're, they're all not... I mean, they're singing off the same sheet of music, but they're not singing in tune. Uh, Rev may have a, a a certain opinion of what it means to be an America firster. I may have a little bit different opinion. Uh, establishments are the same. You got varying degrees of establishment orientation in the Republican Party. So let's let's say that Michigan is up for grabs, and Wisconsin is up for grabs, and Nevada and Arizona are up for grabs, and Georgia got to be careful there. North Carolina, got to be careful there. Um, I mean, I don't think Virginia is in play. I just don't. I think there are too many government bureaucrats that, that make a living off government keeping the trains running on time that they can't, they, they're just not going to vote for anybody like, like Donald Trump. I don't think Pennsylvania is legitimately in play. I think it'll be close, but, but I think Pennsylvania will do what it takes to deliver <laughs> Pennsylvania for the Democrats. I'll just leave it there. But if you are trying to win Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan, let's just use those three as an example. I mean, let's say North Carolina's okay. Georgia, I think, is okay. I mean, you can't, you can't take it for granted, but I think they lean Republican. I think Georgia leans Republican. I know it's got two Democrats. I know Trump lost it, but I still believe. I've looked at some of the demographics. Georgia's the one state that makes no sense in 2024. So I'm, I'm being a bit optimistic. I'm putting Georgia and North Carolina in the Democrat column. It's weird I'm not talking about Georgia, I mean, excuse me, Florida and Ohio. I mean, historically, we don't worry that much about Georgia, don't worry that much about North Carolina, but we're, you know, we're, we're investing in Ohio. We're investing in, in Florida. It's almost like Florida and Ohio have swapped places with Georgia and North Carolina. A um, little bit leaning red, but but not you got to be careful you got but but Arizona is truly a toss up state swing state Nevada swing state Michigan swing state Wisconsin swing states the one thing you've got to be sure of is your crowd shows up and votes i mean you've got to be sure of that you've got to be absolutely certain that you've got every like minded republican possible coming to the poll let's say between now and november some of the conservative establishment Republicans and some of the America firsters make amends. I mean, I don't know if there's an unspoken deal. I don't know if you look at Biden and say, can't go there. I guess I got to go vote for Trump. We know that's going to happen. We don't know to what percentage. We don't know to what degree some of the establishment Republicans who don't like the fact that the party is now in the hands of America firsters, but we believe that party loyalty, party commitment, political belief, will we'll allow whatever percent of that 15% to go back home, so to speak. I mean, you've heard that in, in numerous elections. I mean, they, you know, it's a hard-fought primary, but they'll come back home and they'll support the candidate. 
let's say that we're in a dogfight in Arizona divide in Michigan, and we got to have every damn Republican possible voting. That includes some of the, I don't want to say never Trumpers. It, rec- it includes some of the ones that aren't crazy about Trump being the nominee, but don't profess to be never Trump. I'm going I'm to I'm keep my powder dry. I mean, I'm going to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to let him play out, and I'm going to watch how he behaves and watch how his campaign um, handles itself. But all of a sudden, Trump publicly speaks on behalf of his daughter-in-law, which you would expect him to do, to be co-chair of the national organization responsible for getting Republicans elected. If Laura Trump is co-chair of the RNC, am I comfortable as a Republican running for a House seat in Nevada that she has my best interest at heart, or is it all about Trump? I mean, it's not an extension of the Trump business empire. It's not. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not. And I think you put too much at risk in doing that. If I'm running for a Senate seat in Arizona and Laura Trump is co-chair of the National Party, convince me she cares about me. You can't. She may. She may be as, as genuine and competent and able as anybody, but you're not going to convince me, Rev, that she cares as much about me as she does about her, her father-in-law. I was just human nature. And I just believe that combine that, that the RNC is supposed to be about what? Getting Republicans elected. I mean, it starts with the president, but it doesn't end there. I mean, it starts with the president, and then it filters down to, you know, Senate races and House races and, and state houses. And, I mean, it really, to, to, at the end of the day, it goes all the way down to city and county councils and school boards and wherever a partisan race is held, that's where the RNC has an interest. And how do you convince everybody running with an R beside their name that it's not all about Trump when his daughter-in-law is the second highest ranking ah, hand in the RNC? I, I just think you're asking for trouble. I think I think it's, it's going to be hard to get there. It's going to be harder to get some of the uh, some of the less America first inclined Republicans to be on board when you do that. I, I can see this scenario. You ready, Josh? I can see this. G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I can see a scenario where a lot of establishment Republicans have cooled off a little bit. They've had a month or two to stew on it, and they've been lifelong Republicans, and they say, okay, I mean, I don't like where we're headed, but I'm a Republican, and the Republican voters have spoken loudly and clearly, and they want more Trump. I don't, but they do. So I'm willing to be a team player and get back on board with this guy that I'm not real crazy about. And in the next sentence, he did what? He he put his daughter-in-law as the co-chair of the National Party? I'm out. I'm out. But I try to give benefit of the doubt. I try to be a team player. I understand that politics is a math, and the bigger the better, the more the better. That's how we win elections, but I'm just not going to be insulted like that. I, I just think there's going to be a lot of that, and I think it's too damaging a move in the long run, and I want to win. I want Trump to win. I want Republicans to win. I want Republicans to adopt the America First agenda, the America First movement. I mean, we need more on there, energy on there. And I think once you put her as second in charge of the RNC, you diminish the likelihood 
that more and more establishment Republicans warm up to the idea of an America first political agenda. I kind of want to push back on that a little bit, if that's all right. Sure. Um, Don't you I, ever I, say if that's all right, just do it. I get what you're saying. And, but, but the problem with this like hypothetical you're proposing is I just don't think it exists. I don't think these like moderate establishment uh, Republicans in the way you portrayed them exist. I think that people, what do you mean they don't exist. I think that this, this, idea that okay you Trump, don't think Trump there's is an anti-trump the, movement within the republican party oh no that i i definitely agree okay. with that but i okay. think that because what you were saying was like what if there is some person who's like well i don't like trump but the people like trump so i'm going to work with him oh he's putting his daughter in place well now i'm out i don't think that i think and i've said this before if you're maybe that would have existed in 2016 but at this point I don't think there's anyone who hasn't had their mind made up about Trump. I think they've got their minds made up. But, I mean, a lot of us have our minds made up, and we warm up to the idea. Mm-hmm. We, we accept something as reality. We don't like it, mm-hmm. but we kind of accept it. Um, I see what you're saying. You believe that we've given people long enough to make that decision. Are you in or not? I believe that there are still some out there that have a loyalty to the brand that is the Republican Party, that if you give them enough time, they'll never warm up to Trump, but they'll hold their nose and vote for Trump. And I think they're more likely to hold their nose and vote for Trump if she's not the co-chair of the National Party. I think they're less likely to hold their nose. And Josh, in the grand scheme of things, this, this hypothetical person I'm identifying doesn't have to be but 10,000 in a nation of 300 and 40 million to change the outcome of an election. I mean, it could be that close. I mean, it, and that's why I'm saying we know that all too I mean, well. I mean, that's where we are. Right. I mean, the national polls matter and, and, and it's a little bit optimistic right now for Trump, but it's still, I mean, it's going to boil down to four states. But I'm, I'm kind of with Josh though. I just don't know that, you know, that's going to be the tipping point on Trump. You know, he just is what he is. Okay. Let, let me say this. It's dumb. But, but to make yeah, your daughter-in-law the co-chair of the RNC. It, it would be a self-inflicted, unnecessary wound if you turned one vote off because of that. I mean, Why I get do that. that? And, and also, to your credit, I will say that the chairperson of the RNC right now is related to Mitt Romney. And she's been horrible. Terrible. So I would say and how that, many times do you say Ronald McDaniel without, isn't she related to Mitt Romney? Right. Yeah, it, I, just think there, I, I just think you're asking, in my business life, you're going to find trouble. Well, that lends credit to what you're arguing to me more than the other. But but her name isn't Romney. You, you've got to dig a little bit to find yeah. out. I mean, what what percentage of people in America today don't know that Ronald McDaniel is is um is related to Mitt Romney? Yeah, well, Everybody will know that Donald Trump's daughter-in-law is going to be the RNC coach. And I just think you're asking for pro- enough trouble is going to come your way. I guess this would be categorized in my world. Now, Josh disagrees, and I think to some degree you do. I think this is unnecessary self-inflicted wound. I just don't think you need to do this. I mean, it's just. Yeah. And, I mean, and that part I agree with. Now, she may be very good at it, and I think she's been a pretty good surrogate. Let her remain a surrogate. And going on the shows, and she's a pretty good spokesperson. I mean, I, I just think it reeks of, I need to find my daughter-in-law something to do. 
And that's the one thing that you and I have been appalled at. Yeah. You know, I mean, man, politics is too much about finding. What, what did I say a couple of weeks ago? If any of you knew how many family members of members of Congress worked in the military industrial complex, you would, you would lose your mind because <laughs> whatever you think it is, it's a hundred times more. See, I mean, that's it, crazy. And, and it, it smells like that rev yeah. when all of a sudden Laura Trump, and this is not, and you know me, man, I mean, this is not, this has nothing to do with her personally, nothing at all. I just think it smells bad and it looks bad and it creates an unnecessary question. And I, I just think Trump's chances of winning are better if she's not the co-chair. His chances of winning are less if she is. I want the cat to win. Therefore, I don't want her to be co-chair. Let her be <laughs> a surrogate. Let her do her thing in other ways. But find somebody not named Trump to be co-chair of the Republican National Committee. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. R G in Hartsville. Good morning, uh, Dave. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, I'm calling because of what was just said about Donald Trump not being able to um, choose his own daughter-in-law to be in a position that he could trust. He's been lambasted by, by so many people, and there's so much going on against him that sometimes you need to be able to trust someone in a position that you know they're not going to lie to you or try and cheat you. And so I, I'm frustrated by the fact that you have lambasted him so much the way you have put this that even Josh says, I'm out. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, what you're saying is more ridiculous than what I'm saying. I mean, you're arguing that Donald Trump has a right to put who in charge of the RNC he chooses? Uh, who he can trust. It's not his party. I mean, his, his trust is a big part of it, but his trust isn't the only part. What, what about if I ran as a Republican and I couldn't trust Laura Trump? I'm not... <laughs> We're talking about Donald Trump, not Laura Trump, as far as a position that... It's not a position within his campaign. It's not a position within his business. It's the RNC, the Republican National Committee, has a responsibility and obligation to every single Republican in America. And you're making it look like or sound like to me, and I don't know if it was in your mouth, but you're making it sound like to me that Donald Trump has a right for people that he can trust to be the RNC, and I just don't think that should be the priority. Now, what I'm saying is how he can't find very many people that he can trust today is what I'm saying. She's not going to be in that position forever, is she? I have no idea. I mean, she's, you know, he, he's recommended, I mean, from what I've read, he's endorsed Michael Watley as chairman of the RNC. You've got to have a, if you've got a male chairman, you've got to have a female co-chair, and he says he wants Laura Trump to be the co-chair. To me personally, that smells like trying to get a job for a family member, and that's not what the RNC should be about. No, I understand what you're saying. I really do. And I, and I understand what you're saying. We just disagree. But it, where I'm having a problem is, just like what you got through saying, 
And what did Josh say? I'm out. And what does that mean? I'm out. I mean, what, what does that I think mean? Josh just said he pushed back a little bit and have a, have Josh a, just disagrees a little with disagreement. Me. Yeah. Okay, but he did say I'm out. That's what I heard him last say. Well, I, I hope he's not out. We need him to stay. Need you to stay. We just <laughs> yeah. we just have a gentlemanly disagreement. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the call. What, I mean, yeah, you're not I mean, out, are you, Josh? I, mean, I don't think he's out. I mean, <laughs> no. I, and I don't want the caller to be out. And I, I just think, I these, think these are that. interesting debates. They sure are. And and they get pretty intense. And it doesn't take but a second. And I, there's I respect valid that. arguments. On, sure, on, I mean, on there's all valid sides. arguments on all sides. I want Donald Trump to win. I think it's more likely that Trump wins if she's not the co-chair of the RNC. That may be complete and total made-up speculation and something not worthy of consideration, but I believe politics has to be tended to. I mean, there has to be consideration given about every single thing that comes down the pike, and it's going to be a slugfest. I mean, it's going to be a dogfight. And and I think every single vote in Arizona, Nevada, and and Michigan are going to count, and I believe it's more likely that there's some degree of reconciliation between the establishment wing of the party and the America First wing of the party if someone named Trump is not co-chair of the RNC. That's all I'm saying. You are certainly entitled to disagree. I don't care if it's civilly or, or not so civilly. You have a right to disagree. I've been in politics a good while, ran for office, understand the minutia involved, and I think Trump's chances of winning are better if someone not named Trump or co-chair of the RNC. Speaking of uh, Trump, he has a primary today in Michigan. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, what can we expect? What do you predict we could expect today in Michigan? Good morning. So that, that same battle that you're, you're, you're talking about uh, on a national level is kind of playing out in Michigan as well, where polls are open and where for Democrats, it's basically a straightforward primary vote. Uh, though the GOP primary results, it's going to de- it'll determine how 16 of Michigan's 55 RNC delegates will be awarded. The other 39 will be decided on Saturday during a first-of-its-kind caucus during a state party convention uh, that will be doled out on the preferences of delegates from each congressional district. That after Michigan Democrats, who now control the, the House, the Senate, and the governor's office, they signed off on the Biden administration's preferred earlier primary date change which violated Republican National Committee rules that states that only Iowa, uh, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina were allowed to hold primaries before March. Uh, Former President Donald Trump leading the GOP contest by double digits over Nikki Haley. Um, But a potential problem for President Biden, he could lose a significant number of votes as a large group of Arab Americans in Dearborn are urging Michigan Democrats to cast primary ballots as uncommitted in protest of the president and his handling of the Hamas war. Now for that battle that's playing out in in Michigan, um, there have been various efforts within different factions of the party to oust the Michigan party chair by the name of Christina Caramo and replace her with a, a Trump-friendly Pete Hoekstra, former congressman, former uh, U.N. ambassador to the Netherlands under Trump. Uh, Caramo has refused to step down uh, and has said that only a court order would compel her to resign from her position as chair of the party. Uh, 
which has created a lot of confusion as to, to what's going on, who's in charge. Right now, simply put, there are two Michigan GOP chairs and with these duplicate events. Very well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. You too. That's kind of an interesting uh, highlight and kind of a speculation. I want to go back to this because this is interesting to me. I didn't imagine it would be so intense. I want an America First chairman of the RNC. It should be an America First chairman of the RNC. America Firsters make up roughly 70% of the Republican base today. I want, a, I want an America First co-chair of the Republican Party. I want an America First committee men and women in, in all these varying states. I want hardworking, true-believing America Firsters. I just think it hurts the cause if one of the most high-ranking has the last name Trump. It's not that I'm saying, hey, let's get an establishment old hand to kind of balance it out and, and, and make the establishment. No, we've won the right to control the RNC. I mean, the America Firsters have won the right to control the direction of the Republican National Committee. I just think our success is going to be greater if someone not named Trump is on television every day, in media every day, advocating for the cause of America first. That's all I'm saying. I think she is very entitled to be whatever part of the Trump campaign they decide for her to be. It would be the most interesting question. I mean, I've given the two people that Trump hired a lot of credit for being extremely adept at what they do. I mean, they're very talented. They're very strategic. I think you notice the Trump campaign oh, you can tell. looks a little more disciplined in trying to get to the finish line in this campaign. I mean, they, they, they don't make a lot of mistakes. You don't hear many leaks. Um, I wonder what these two individuals think about Laura Trump being co-chair of the RNC. I mean, that, they would be the two opinions that matter most. I mean, they've been hired by Donald Trump to run his campaign. From what I'm understanding, inside sources, you ready? He's very happy with the job they're doing. Extremely happy, satisfied with how methodical, meticulous, well-prepared, uh, understanding, dedicated, strategic. I mean, all those words that matter, Trump is very pleased with these two people he's hired to run this monstrosity of a campaign. I would be very interested in what their opinions are. Did Trump go to them and say, look, I'm trying to get my daughter-in-law a job. What do you guys think about her being co-chair of the national, I mean, we'll never know that conversation. I don't have any idea if it happened. I got to believe it did. I mean, I've been in a few of those, not at that level, but a few of those where you're deciding something on the periphery that could fundamentally affect turnout and excitement and debt, you know, so, you know, that, that would be, Hey, Hey guys, can you meet this afternoon? Yeah. Um, Laura wants to be co-chair of the RNC and I'd kind of like her to be that. What do you think about the impact it has on the race if we indeed go that route? They may say, do it, Donald. We're fine. I mean, don't worry about it. I, I, that, that would be a very interesting yeah. conversation the three of those people had that I think matters. I mean, it may not. I may be trying to overhype something that really doesn't matter much at all. I think it does. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hi, Jim. You're on. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, Ken, I don't think it matters at all. Who wins elections nowadays? I mean, we talk about policy all day long, and we enjoy that. But nobody else cares about policy the way we do. Uh, 
they don't care who is the co-chairman of the Republican National Committee. Um, they, we win by getting the most votes. And how that happens today is a lot different than how it was uh, 10 years ago, five years ago. We don't win by getting our message across. We win by getting the most votes. So who is capable of doing that? I'm not arguing that she is, but I'm, what I am arguing is it really doesn't matter. Um, so we need to make sure we're putting people in place uh, that know how to get the most votes. But, you're, but you are arguing, Jim, that it does matter because the RNC will have a big responsibility and role in voter turnout. Um, that They will work in concert with the presidential campaign where to allocate resources, where to put manpower, how do we turn out, how do we improve in these districts, or how do we do better in these precincts. I get what you're saying, but but I think it does fundamentally matter more than it ever has. The well, RNC first, chair and co-chair, one, one of their top priorities has to be voter turnout. I mean, you and I agree with that. It's not about messaging. It's not about compelling candidate. It's not about intriguing backstory. It's not about, hey, that, that, that guy was a really good candidate. That person was a bad candidate. It is a voter turnout era in American politics. It's all about finding voters and getting a ballot in their hand, getting that ballot filled out, getting that ballot counted. I think that position probably matters more today than it ever has. Well, the first step then was getting Rona out. Agree. You you and I 100% agree with that because she sucked at it. She was terrible at it. She didn't believe that was the new formula for winning elections. She thought it was still about messaging and finding candidates that, you know, look the part and act the part. You and I know or have been convinced that that's just, I mean, that matters. I mean, you're not going to get a bum elected, but but it's all about voter turnout. It's all about unsupervised mail-in ballots. And the RNC is going to be charged with some of that responsibility to match what the DNC has built. So how how is Laura Trump not suited for that job. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that she is or is not. I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that, that I don't want to see the RNC turn into something where you give a family member a job because that family member matters a lot. That's kind of what we were appalled by in the gym. That's kind of what we got turned off by. Uh, maybe, maybe not, but uh, what turns me off more is certainly other things, uh, you know, like um, all the textile jobs going overseas and all the other things. I mean, that certainly uh, it, it is the patent on the back and all this other stuff. Is that maybe problematic? Uh, yes, but um, if we all got money in our pockets and our sons aren't dying in foreign wars, then maybe it's a maybe it's something that I can tolerate. Um, but you know, hey, look, Rona's gone. Maybe Laura's better suited. Maybe she's not. Um, but certainly, I, I do think there are people um, who have entrenched themselves in this this new system. Uh, Scott Pressler comes to mind, uh, along with a few others. You know, I don't know, are they handicapped by taking a position like that? I mean, you may not want to put your best and brightest in that particular position because it may actually handicap them worse because they're focusing on things that, that aren't going out there and getting the vote. Um but, no, yeah, we certainly need people that understand the game, um, that understand, um, you know, the, the, two P, the 2 a.m. drops and, and how all this system works so that um, our ballots are counted and theirs are not. 
Um, so this idea that, um, you know, voter suppression, well, everybody wants to suppress the other people's votes, and they certainly did that to us. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. And, and I mean, Jim and I are in lockstep on globalism and interventionism. I mean, he and I are in lockstep. No more crazy wars, endless wars, foreign in invasions. Uh, let's bring jobs back to America. Let's improve the lives and lot of the, the average American working family. And I'd like to believe our best shot is to get America first candidates elected and build a consensus and build a sustainable political agenda and movement. I mean, it's a movement now. It will have to become a political ideology slash philosophy slash, you know, winning elections. And, and I just, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that Rev and Josh are wrong and the majority of callers are wrong. I would just rather see somebody in that job with more experience at voter turnout. Scott Pressler has been an impressive person when it comes to how do we get people to vote? What we need to happen in Michigan, Josh, you cue the music. What we need to happen in Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona is when the Democrat van is dumping off 2,000 harvested ballots at 3 o'clock in the morning, they have to wait on the Republican ballot harvester to get out of the way. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that, that's what we need. And I just, there, there's nothing about Laura Trump that I believe is that person, period. Just my take. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Trump can't give her the job. She's got to win the job. I mean, he can lobby. He can, you know, recommend. But at the end of the day, it, it's an election. And that will be very interesting. I mean, that, that'll be, I mean, what is the consensus of the, the offensive linemen of the RNC? I mean, that, you know, the surrogates and the pundits, I mean, that's kind of the glitz and glamour side of it. Uh, and, and I'm talking about people who have just invested blood, sweat, and tears in the RNC. What do they feel about it? Um, will they vote her in or not? Uh, Trump's endorsement, it undefeated. We know that. His recommendation is not spotless. Let's go to the phone. Joel and Mullins. Hi, Joel. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Ken, um, two things. First of all, I, I would want to see um, the appointment of a relative in that position become a custom. Um, the other thing is, um, what is the relationship of the National Republican Committee uh, what is its influence? What is its position regarding in the administration and the governing by the presidency? Uh, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I mean, they adopt an agenda. They have policy ideas. They they advocate for candidates. They fundraise like crazy. Uh, they host the convention. They host or have a hand in hosting. I mean, they host the primary debates. They have a hand in hosting the presidential debates. In other words, the network, the RNC and DNC get together and put down some ground rules for the debates. I want to say this. I think the RNC historically has been antiquated. I mean, it's been, it's, it's kind of Sears in an Amazon world. And I mean, it's been too many blue blazers, cigars, and scotch and waters and not enough vigor and energy and youthfulness. And, and I think the DNC has, that's where their, that's where their big advantage is. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they got an infrastructure that doesn't focus on, you know, how many limousine rides are we going to put these dignitaries in? How do we get them to the Marriott? How do we get them to the, to the right hotel? They're more interested in how do we get this ballot in the hand of somebody who may vote for one of our candidates? We went through some of the expenditures recently. Um, now, now, now Trump's a different animal. 
and the campaigns are exclusive of the RNC until they win the nomination. And then they're, they're, they're compatible. I mean, I'll give an example. A lot of people in the RNC that I talk to are bothered that so much of the money is going to help Trump pay his legal bills. Some don't believe they paid enough. I mean, they think he's our guy. I mean, he's our future. He's our presidential candidate. We got to do everything we can to make sure he gets proper legal defense. I mean, you know, it's not a monolith. I mean, it, there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different people, and they carry a lot of them. Um, I mean, they have a lot of different. I don't know how much weight they carry in the grand scheme of things, but but the infrastructure that is necessary in running a political party, I mean, they would be Grand Central Station of um of all of that. Let's go to the phone. James in Florence. Hi, James. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. I've got two things. One, I didn't know that the G, um, the RNC was into affirmative action. We ought to be this person, be it a man or a woman. Also, I don't believe hardly anyone could tell you who the co-chair of the RNC is right now. But if Laura Trump gets it, the media will make sure that everybody knows it. And uh, they may forget it by the time election comes, but if we start losing midterms, they will bring it up that Laura Trump is the co-chair. So I'm kind of with Ken on this. I don't think it's a good uh, move for Trump to make. Thank you. Appreciate that. And then once again, that's my opinion. There's somebody who called in. They normally call in to disagree with me. We got one, and Josh likes that. I mean, Josh says, man, when you say nobody agrees with you out there, why do they listen to you if they don't agree with anything you say? There's some provocateur in all of these conversations we have. Let's go to the phone. We've got a minute and a half. Uh, we have Don in Florence. Hi, Don. Uh, yes, uh, I think that the uh, RNC is not known by any many very many bo- uh, voters who are the soldiers, but Trump needs information about who can de- he can destroy that is has a thought of their own. So he is a destroyer and not a builder of anything. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, I don't know that I buy that. He's a destroyer of the political establishment. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I think his life is being built on building things, hotels, golf courses, construction projects. Some of they argue about who gets paid at the end. I mean, he's in a lawsuit every time you turn around about, you know, what he paid or what he didn't pay <laughs> or, or, you know, some squabble in business. But I don't think that you could say Trump destroys things. I think most of his life he's built things until he got in politics. And once he got in politics and became kind of the ultimate disruptor, there was kind of heat-seeking missiles with, um, you know, as much as he likes to put his name on things, some of the um, some of the forces like to put his name on these heat-seeking missiles, <laughs> and he's done the best he knows how at dodging um, and he's done a pretty good job of that. Uh, he may be the cockroach in the ice age. You know, we look at a cockroach and say, how did they make it through the ice age? I don't know what they did. I think one of these days, how did Trump make it through? I don't know what he did. I might have a little cockroach <laughs> in him. I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, but, but look, let, let's get, I never thought there'd be that much interest in who the RNC chair is until somebody named Trump gets nominated. Take a break. Now, nah, we'll talk tomorrow.